Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Going to take it into the zone down low. His pass ends up hitting the referee. Blues walking in front. Shoot. He scores. Mr. Reliable. Oscar Sundquist has put the Blues on top. Keller dangles in, hitting the trailer. Nice play. Score. Power play goal for the Arizona Coyotes. Which Navich. Far side. Score. Robert Thomas. Goals in five straight games. Puck drop. Blocked by Thomas. Now you can bring out the Zamboni. And the St. Louis Blues get their first division win. They beat the Arizona Coyotes 2-1 tonight. Not kind of play play passive. We stayed aggressive. We made them defend and uh, made them hard hard to get chances. So a lot of guys made some really smart plays and, and really committed to that, that game. And uh, that's why we were able to hold on to the win. That's what we wanted to see. That's what Blues fans wanted, a Central Division team in town. And the Blues just put the pedal to the metal, and they just drive over the competition, T-Bone. Drove right over them with a 2-1 winner. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns back in our studios, I'm Alex Ferrario because we are at the beautiful E&B Granite Studios here at the Centene Community Ice Center after a Blues victory to wrap up this four-game homestand as the Blues get set now to go out to Colorado for a game tomorrow night before they come back home. And T-Bone, we will just start with the win because I know there's a lot of people listening right now thinking, what about the power play? The power play stunk. The only thing to me that matters was how that game unraveled because that's a game that we have seen four separate times this season, the Blues lose. That's a game that... Last year, the Blues lose. And what I mean by that is you lost momentum. You take the early goal. You score early thanks to Oscar Sundquist and a nice forecheck by the fourth line. You get past Vamelka, who's had your number these last couple of seasons. You get on the board. And then all of the penalties start getting called. The Blues have a two-full-minute five-on-three. Did not score on that. Had an extended power play. Thanks to Liam O'Brien, uh, the luck of the Irish with his uh, good anger towards Sammy Blay. You'd get another one later in that first period. You'd have three in the second period, seven total power plays. And you don't score on any of them. As a matter of fact, after your five on three, you take a penalty and Arizona scores. And at that moment, T-Bone, you and I texted last night. At that moment when Arizona scored and the Blues did not muster any offense from their five on three, We both said this game's going to go south quick. 
and the Blues and Joel Hofer held on for the, the storm for the rest of that first period, and they pushed back in the second period. I know that they are on the power play still. I know Arizona did not have a whole lot of even strength time in the second period, but from the second and third period, you never let Arizona gain momentum. And that, to me, is an improvement from Tuesday or yeah Tuesday night's game. It's an improvement from what we've seen earlier this season, and it's an improvement from what we saw last year. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think this team, two years, it's been two years since we've seen a win like that for the St. Louis Blues. You know, I, a game like that where we said it, and they called when the Blues call a timeout in the first period with a full five-on-three, two-minute uh, power play, you know for a fact that that is such an important power play that could potentially, I don't want to say put the game out of reach because it was the first period, but really solidify momentum for the Blues in that Central Division bout against the Arizona Coyotes, in which they hadn't won a Central Division game yet. So that when they don't score on that, my initial reaction was, oh boy, yeah. this could be bad. And then when Arizona scored, I immediately I texted the group and I said, guys, I feel like they're going to lose this game. This feels like a game that this team has not won for the last two years, and we'll see if they can find a way to get out of it. And to their credit, they did. Now, they didn't do it thanks to their power play, which was 0 for 7. We'll talk about the power play and its Easy. struggles it's a later win. on. I know I know it's a win, and I'm going to give them their roses for it because it, it is a good win for this St. Louis Blues team. It's a game that I, I don't think we've seen them play over the last two years where it is. I, I don't want to say it was a full 60 minutes from the team, but it was a game where it was, Oh my gosh, this, this just feels like it could snowball on you. And they were able to maintain momentum. They were able to prevent things from going super poorly for them. And they do a good job to find a way to squeak out a win. And Craig Berube's talked about it. You know, they want to win hockey games 2-1. to one. Well, If you're going to win a hockey game 2-1, to one, you're going to have to overcome sometimes your power play not getting the job done. You're going to have to overcome sometimes the penalty kill, not killing one of those penalties. So they did a great job last night in terms of finding a way to win that hockey game. And give them credit for that. I, I wasn't pretty necessarily, but you find a way to get two important points against a Central Division team. Yeah, look, I mean, these close games, nobody wants to hear it that, you know, the Blues can't play in these games. They can, though. Like, that's the thing. They can play in these close games. And if you don't believe me, go back and look through some of these losses. Now, have they spiraled out of control? Absolutely. But the Winnipeg Jets game on Tuesday night, you entered the second period down by a goal. You put the momentum back on your side thanks to that late Robert Thomas goal. And the problem was you took a penalty, put Winnipeg on the power play, and they grabbed the momentum and kept it the rest of the game. You couldn't get it back. Go back to the Colorado Avalanche game, T-Bone. You were down 2-1 to one going into the third period. You were the only team that scored in that second period. And what happens? You got a power play early, didn't score on it, and then Colorado scored at even strength moments after. Then, another one for you, just because I'm all about examples these days, the Winnipeg Jets game that you lost 4-2. to You entered the third period down by a goal. You are on the power play, took a penalty that made it 4-on-4, four four, and they scored. And then they scored again at uh, even strength, and you lost the game. So the push from the Blues in that game, to me, showed the mental toughness. That's the adjustments that we've talked about. How often have we talked about this team getting into a snowball and not being able to find their way out of it? Guys, all season long, this team has ended the snowball. And that, to me, is a significant improvement from last year. Yeah, they, they've been able to prevent some significant snowballs, not just, I wouldn't say in individual games, but as a whole, they've done a better job of it, I would say, on the year, because I've been waiting for the losing streak to come, especially early on in the year when it was, man, this team's getting out shots, they're getting out chance. And, and then when you look at it, they would, 
they find a way to come back and win at the next hockey game. They find a way to drop off the game from previous and say, you know what, we're going to forget about that. We're going to come back and we're going to get a win. So right. I, I've been really impressed with what we've seen. They've been able to prevent the snowball so far this year, and they've been able to do it without really, and we've talked about this, really having like a significant strength, I would say. Because each game, it feels like there's something you can point to. Okay, maybe the defense was lackluster one game, or the power play isn't good, or the penalty kill isn't good. Yet they find a way in that game last night to prevent that snowball from happening, and they're able to get the win, which is is super important for this team. And I, I just felt like last night was one of those where it's like, whoa, I haven't seen that in a while. And I think that's super important for this team because, remember, they've been talking about it since preseason. We're not talking about last year. We're yeah. not talking about last year. Yet, every now and then, we continue to say, okay, well, that's something we saw from last year. That's something we saw from last year. Last night was the first game where I was like, okay, that's a really good win for this team. So let's uh, let's hear a little from Tory Krug because he talked last night after the game uh, about winning that one 2-1 to one, despite that power play going 0-7. Yeah, they, they got one of the power play, too, so um, lost the special team battle. I thought, you know, killing it gave them a lot of energy, and they got their push, but, you know, I thought we did a good job of responding and not getting overwhelmed uh, um, that things weren't going our way. Uh, that's a sign of a team that's, you know, growing up a little bit, so we got to continue that, and there's always a next play to be made. There's always going to be another power play uh, when you do make those mistakes, so, you know, we got to continue Bradford, we that. can't hear the audio back here, but I'm assuming it's wrapped up, but Tori Krug, of course, talking about the ability for the power play to um, to struggle, but the team continuing to have success at 5-on-5. Five five. And that's the other thing, T-Bone. They have outscored their opponent at even strength all season long. So what are we now? We are 11 games into the season. They've outscored their opponent 20-18 to 18 at even strength. So that means through 11 games, 12 games, my apologies, you've allowed 18 even strength goals. So the 5-on-5 five five play, the ability for this team to stay consistent that's at an all-time high. But we heard Tory Krug there. He's the other one I wanted to mention. So Tory Krug now has points in two straight games after going 10 straight without a point. Obviously, he thrives when the power play thrives. Hasn't been working right now. So he's picked up some even strength goals. But the part that people aren't talking about with Tory Krug is his overall play. And this is a guy, much like we did with Jordan Kyrou at the beginning of the season, of how... We talk so much about his lack of defense, and you don't give him credit when, when he's actually doing it. You give the guy the roses. Tory Krug, you have to provide the roses for. So right now on the season, he's averaging around 21 minutes a night. He's a plus four on the season, which I know, eh, plus minus doesn't matter. What does matter is if you look at three of his last four games, he's been a plus in every one of them. He got six shots on goal last night against Arizona. He's scoring. Well, not scoring. His line is scoring. They're they're producing offense. He's playing sound defensively, and he and Justin Falk are eating up a lot of minutes right now. I'm not sure if fans are ready to buy back into Tory Krug if he's not putting up 40, 50, 60 points in the season. But to me, he's fixed the one area that you needed, and you needed another guy who could play 18, 19, 20 minutes a night and rely on, and Tory Krug has been reliable all season. Yeah, Tory Krug, I... I think he's been fine, I would say. I haven't noticed where it was last year where it is, okay, Tory Krug looks like a negative on the ice for the St. Louis Blues. Now, granted, in his defense, a lot of the defensemen looked that way last year. But like you said, he's been a plus four. But I, he's going to have to start putting up points, and I think that's going to come. But if he's not putting up points on the power play and he's not putting up points on even strength, I do think at some point, though, it is going to revert back to going, okay, Tory Krug's not the guy that the St. Louis Blues 
not the guy that they were expecting coming into the year because he is a guy that is going, if you're going to look at Tory Krug and say, okay, that guy was worth the $6.5 million this year, it's because of his offense. He's, he's going to have to become a or be a point producer for this team, and, and that's also where they can continue to get better and improve on their five-on-five play. And if the power play is going to turn itself around, whether he's on the top or second unit last night got demoted down to the second unit, Tory Krug's going to have to be a factor in that. So, yes, I think he's been fine so far, but I think they need him to take his game to the next level because defensively I think he's been solid five-on-five. Five. He's done pretty well on the penalty kill as well. But for him to for us to look at him and go, okay, that was a good bounce back year for Krug, I think he does have to put up points. Now, I'm not saying he has to put up, like, be a point-per-game guy by any means, but he definitely needs to start putting up points five-on-five, five, helping get the puck out of the zone quickly, and to really be the guy that can help get the power play back on track. Yeah, you, you can't end the season with five points and act like it was a good season for Tory Krug, but what you can do is if you see a guy who puts up 20 to 30 points but also is somebody that is in the plus conversation of goal differential, but also somebody that was eating up 18 to 20 minutes a night, that's about as important as putting up 50 or 60 points if the team isn't winning hockey games. So uh, it's a little bit of both sides with this one. Uh, and He, of course, will be back in action. We'll see if the power play can get going uh, against Colorado tomorrow night. It'll be an 8 o'clock puck drop with their first community credit union pregame starting at 7 o'clock. We'll talk about those power play struggles coming up in the 12 o'clock hour. But coming up next, John Mozalock has had a lot of things said over this GM meetings. But he also made a statement yesterday in Derek Gould's article on the Post-Dispatch that made T-Bone and I wonder, what are they talking about here? We'll dive into it next here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario, we are here at the E&B Granite Studios at Centene Community Ice Center as we are here every Friday, BK and Ferrario Live. No BK with us. He is on vacation for his birthday. He'll be back with us on Tuesday, where hopefully on Tuesday we'll have some Cardinals offseason news. Pro- like a new pitcher? Probably not, because this is how the GM meetings go. They... A lot of buzz for about a week, and then silence for the next month. And then you start to pick things up once you get to the winter meetings. But John Moselak, Derek Gould, John Denton, both are doing phenomenal jobs reporting out in Arizona. And John Moselak, once again, had another comment that struck you and I, T-Bone, in Derek Gould's piece on the Post-Dispatch. Quote, it's been no secret. We know we have to find guys who can give us some innings. We like our everyday position player club from the standpoint when you look back at what happened in 2023, for us we know there are areas we have to get better at. For a team that always focused on doing the little things, I think we got away from that a little bit. Ultimately, as we start to prepare for next year, those are the things we want to get back to. Those little things ended up being big things, and those big things ended up creating the disaster. End quote. So, now we get to play Sherlock Holmes and say, huh, what are these little things he's talking about? Are we going down the Yankees path, T-Bone, where we need to start they bunting should, more? Oh, my gosh, they should. We should that. start bunting more. We should start running the bases better. I personally think, and you think as well, 
this is talking about defense. They were 20th in defensive runs saved last season, and if there's one thing we know about the Cardinals, little things, the little things the Cardinals' way is always about defense. And frankly, that's the stuff that did turn into disaster for this team last year. Yeah, I, I think what this comment was, and I, I think we can all agree on it, is it's about run prevention, defense and run prevention. And apparently that was, in the piece from Derek Gould, a big topic of conversation at the GM meetings of teams trying to figure out how do we get back to being a good run prevention team. Because as much as we want to talk about offense and we want to talk about swing and miss, Defense is still up there in terms of its importance in the game of baseball. So I, I think when you hear these comments, I think basically what Mo is saying, you know, our defense is going to have to be better if we're going to be a team to get back to the promised land, get back into October and play meaningful baseball down the stretch as well. Now, what I would ask is, like, what does he what's his plan in terms of how they get better in run prevention? Because, you know, we were talking with BK last night while he was flying down to Austin, um, you know, talking about this quote from John Mozalek, and I, I think BK said it perfectly. I don't want to take credit for this, but, you know, the de- the ceiling for the Cardinals' defense is what Nolan Arnato does. Can Nolan Arnato get back to being the gold glove third baseman he was this year dealt with back injuries, had a little bit of arm fatigue uh, early on in the year? What do you, what was You could clearly tell. The numbers said it, and the eye test showed it. Arnato wasn't as good defensively this year at third base. And then I think the floor for the defense is how Walker's improvement is in right field. We saw the quotes where uh, the Cardinals are going to have their complex open down in Florida this year for him to go and work on fly balls, tracking those, getting better in the, in defensively out in right field. And I think that's the case for them. I, I think I, I think those are really what's going to determine the defense for this team. Because I looked this up last night in terms of DRS, defensive runs saved, and look, I the numbers, trust me, defensive metrics are not great. Um, but I think the numbers tell the truth. You know, at second base, nobody was a plus in defensive run save this year, including Tom Yemen, who's a gold glover there. Center field, their best center fielder by the numbers, Tom Yemen, plus two. I think that's true. I think he was the best center fielder with the best jump yeah, out there. That's not saying much for how many center fielders yeah. they went through. <laughs> and then left field, the best guys defensively were Donovan, Newpar, uh, Carlson, and O'Neill, all at plus one. So I, I think... If we're going based on what we expect the lineup to be right now with the way the team is constructed with Gorman at second, Edmund in center, and Newt and left, I think that's pretty good defensively. And I hope that they don't decide to go, okay, well, the best way for us to improve defensively means we trade Nolan Gorman and get rid of one of our best offensive bats to try and improve our pitching staff. And, and then you move Edmund to center, and or excuse me, to second base, and then you have Newt in center, and then you figure out left field. I hope they don't kind of overcorrect here in the defensive run prevention. Yeah, category. I mean, we've talked a lot about the Victor Scott, like when that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to be this year, maybe towards the end of the season. Uh, I think it's more than just Arenado and Walker, too. I think this is why they're they're adamant about Yadier Molina joining the staff. You've got to improve defensively behind the plate, not only for the defense itself, but for the pitching staff. I, I I think he's more talking about the center field spot, and I'm with you. Like, Tommy Edmond is the way to go with this one if Tommy Edmond is on this team. If he's not on this team, then now you got to do more significant improvements. But can I also be honest and give you a little tinfoil here? I think this is John Mozeliak's way of basically saying we're not really going to be able to go after swing and miss stuff. Maybe this is ultimate tinfoil for me, but people were getting angry yesterday when we were talking about the Nolas and the Sunny Grays saying, guys, keep bringing up these contact pitchers. They're not, they need swing and miss stuff. Yeah, they need swing and miss stuff if they don't have a good defense, but if John Mosellock and company are saying... They don't add swing and miss. 
the whole front office should be gone. Well, like that's like they need to. But who are the swing and miss stuff that I mean, they're every, getting? Everybody that they're targeting this offseason is swing and miss. Seth Lugo swing. And Look, miss. it's better Team swing miss stuff that miss. they have now. But like I don't, I think this is basically saying like guys, we're we're not going to be able to get Blake. I, Snell. I think they need both. I, I think they need to find a way to improve defensively. And if you ask me how they do that, I think it is mostly keeping the the staff or excuse me, not the staff, the the position player group intact. And your hope is that Arnado bounces back defensively and Walker ends up being better. And I think both of those things will happen um, because they they can't continue to run out the rotation of pitch to contact. It didn't work this year. And, and part of that was just some of those guys were ineffective, like Adam Wainwright this year in his final year. Miles Michaels had a down year. But everybody else that they're targeting, Nola, Snell, Yamamoto, even the mid-tier, Sonny Gray, Lucas Giolito, those guys all have swing and miss stuff. That is what they need to be targeting. It isn't so much of, oh, be, because we don't think we can get swing and miss, so we need to really become a great defensive team. I don't think they're doing that. I think they're trying to go, okay, the little things need to be cleaned up. How do we do that? And I, I think that's the question. And my answer to that would be, you just hope that you, you help Jordan Walker improve in right field and you count on a bounce back from Nolan Arenado. That would be my answer to that. My fear, though, is they're going to say, all right, we're better off with Edmund at second base, so let's use Nolan Gorman as a trade chip. And I I don't necessarily agree that that's how it should happen. Well, I mean, there's not that much of a difference, though. Like, you're talking about offense right here. You're talking about Edmund versus Gorman. I mean, the defense would actually lean towards a Tommy Edmund if you're going defensive run saved. You're talking about the offense in this spot. But what are you going to be able to acquire in a trade if you're moving Tommy Edmund versus Nolan Gorman? Like, these are the also questions you're bringing up, which is, again, why I'm just tinfoil thinking. It's more realistic for this Cardinals team to acquire an Aaron Nola, who does have better swing and miss stuff than anybody on this Cardinals staff right now, than it is realistic that this team can get a Blake Snell or a Yamamoto. Which means if you're going to be going off of somebody who profiles more as that contact hitter or contact pitcher, you've got to tighten up on defense. And if you don't want to trade Nolan Gorman, well, this is how you avoid trading Nolan Gorman. But see, this is the vicious circle that they're in right now. All of this means you've got to spend money. And if you are going to spend money, you can't be prudent about it. Yeah, I, I, I don't think this dictates anything in terms of who they're targeting. I think the list is the same no matter what, even if they do want to improve defensively. But I think this is how you kind of convince yourself that Nolan Gorman is your top trade chip, if you already didn't view it that way anyway. Because they may look at the number, the defensive run save numbers, and again, those are shoddy at best, defensive metrics are. Um, they may look at that and say, you know what, Edmund's better defensively in center. We can pass with Newt Bar, or excuse me, Edmund is better at second base than he is at center. He's won a gold glove there. Newt Bar, is, we think, is a good center fielder, and Donovan is a above-average left fielder. Okay, well, if you come to that conclusion and you say we can't sign Nola, a Sonny Gray, and then a third starter because we don't have the money for that, I think that's when they start to have this conversation of, okay, are we better off trading a Nolan Gorman to the White Sox, for example, kind of the placeholder here, and say we can get a Dylan Cease, save some money there because he's going to be about $8 million this year, and then we have more money to spend on our number two and on the bullpen and the number three starter as well. And I think that's how they can convince themselves, okay, we want to get better at the little things. Okay, well, that means defense. Does that mean you're going to have the conversation about trading Dolan Gorman? Or was this just one of those where it is, okay, when we say we need to get better defensively, 
we need to focus on Jordan Walker. We need to work on Nolan Gorman yeah. still defensively at second base. We need to see improvements from Nolan Arnado, which that one I expect to happen. Like yeah. that, that's not one that you've got to work on. So we need we need improvements from Wilson Contreras too, which once yes. again is is why Yadier Molina they're so adamant. John Mozeliak also said that in the piece with Derek Gould that you know we are confident that Yadi is going to be a part of our staff next season. You need to improve in that area as well on the defensive side and on the catching side with the pitcher. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll talk more about the free agency with Kylie McDaniel, who had a piece out with the projections yesterday up at ESPN. We'll also have uh, Ask Us Anything coming up in 15 minutes, where you can send us your text messages for Ask Us Anything, 314-399-9646. But coming up next, some NFL quick hitters headed into Week 10 here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Week number 10 in the NFL as we get set for it. BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We are at the E&B Granite Studios at Centene Community Ice Center as we dive into some quick hitters alongside Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario. T-Bone, let's start with this. Which 500 or below team do you believe can get into the playoffs? So, just for note, 500 or below team. That would include... The New York Jets, the Chargers, the Raiders, the Broncos, the Texans, Colts, Titans. That's your AFC side of it. You got the Commanders, the Giants, the Rams, Cardinals, Packers, Bears, Falcons, Buccaneers, Panthers. So I'm going to try and do this while I hear an echo in my head. Yeah, Bradford, we have an echo if you can fix that one for us, buddy. Uh, could just be my small brain than just well, no because I don't have I, a small brain and I hear it too oh, okay uh, so I, I think when you're looking about this I, I think I'm going to go to the NFC side because let's just be honest I think the AFC is pretty deep and that's even throwing in a team like the Texans who are four and four Chargers four and four as well as you mentioned is it weird to say that I'm I'm might take Washington. Yes, that's absolutely very I, weird. I know they tried to sell off. Like they sold their top defensive ends. They got rid of Sweat. They got rid of uh, Chase Young. I. The team that has given up 245 yards through nine games, or 245 points through nine games, uh, that's the most, checks no, second most in the NFC. But they, like, I look at their schedule, it's it's a little tough. It's not necessarily awful because they still got Dallas once and they've got, uh, or excuse me, they got Dallas twice. They've got San Fran on there in Miami. But then the rest of it, four or five of those games left are still against teams that are kind of just blah. So I, I think Washington's a team that could sneak in. I mean, honestly, the area I'd look at is the NFC South because that division Yeah, I was going to say, I think Falcons and Buccaneers are better than the, the Commanders. Yeah, I, I would look at it, and I think, I think I'd take Tampa Bay. 
uh, because I out of those two teams that you just mentioned, because I don't trust Atlanta. I think Arthur Smith's a terrible head coach. <laughs> um, I, I look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and they could have won last week against Houston. They played really well. I, they've always been competitive in all these games. I mean, I know they're three and five, but their differential in points is minus nine. They've lost four in a row. They're a team that if they get hot, they could find a way to sneak into the playoffs and even win the NFC South, in my opinion. So I'm going to pick the Texans here, and here's the Texans' schedule the rest of the way. Uh, you got the Cincinnati Bengals this Sunday. You've got the Cardinals, Jaguars, the team that they've already beaten once this season, Broncos, Jets, Titans, Browns, Titans, and Colts. Of those games that I just mentioned – the Browns seem to be the Browns and Bengals seem to be the toughest ones for them, and if you find a way to beat the Jaguars once again, I'm, I'm looking at another six wins for this team. Which we're talking about ten wins for this Texan squad. Maybe I'm a little too hot and bothered by this Houston Texans offense after one game, but I've seen them already destroy the Jaguars. I think they're a better team offensively than the Broncos, Jets, Titans that they played twice and the Colts. I, I think it's the Texans that can make a run and get in. I, I really like that Texans team. I, I think they're probably going to finish right around that 9-8, and 8-9 eight, eight and nine mark because they are too inconsistent defensively. But C.J. Stroud has played really well. Um, I know he had like the two games that were kind of off the last, what was it, two weeks ago, but then he came out and showed up against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I, I could see where they find a way to kind of sneak themselves into the playoff picture. So, I like that pick. I, I think they're a really fun team. And, like, if you said, I mean, we're really jumping ahead because we're talking playoffs now and I'm jumping to next year. <laughs> if you told me right now, like, hey, who's the team to keep an eye on next year, I would say the Texans because Stroud's only going to get better and they have a great roster and a great head coach. Absolutely. So, speaking of the Texans, their opponent this Sunday are the Cincinnati Bengals. And, of course, the Bengals are a team that has gotten red hot over these last few weeks. Uh, but they're going to be out be without a significant piece to their roster as T. Higgins, uh, as Ian Rappaport reported yesterday, did not practice after injuring his hamstring. He's expected to miss Sunday's game, and he's going to be on a week-to-week basis moving forward. If they lose T. Higgins, does that impact this Bengals team at all, T-Bone? I think so, and I'm I'm a little worried about the Bengals this week against the uh, Texans. So Jamar Chase didn't practice either. Is so he playing? He's. Ex- I think he's expected to play. He was limited yesterday. He's dealing with that back injury where he landed on his back on Sunday Night Football last week against who was at the Bills that they were playing. Um, I, I'm a little concerned not just for – I'm more concerned just this week, kind of in the short term without Higgins. I think the Bengals are going to ultimately be fine, and the reason for it is their quarterback's healthy. I think Joe Burrow is the kind of quarterback that can use – have I don't want to say any wide receivers, but he can he can take his team to the next level to where losing a T. Higgins, is it going to hurt them? Yeah, but it's not as significant a loss now that Joe Burrow is healthy. So – I think it hurts them maybe this week against the Texans. I don't think it necessarily hurts them long-term because I still think they're a team that we talked about yesterday that could win the AFC. Yeah, I'm with you. I I, I look at the Cincinnati Bengals' schedule, and you've got a Steelers matchup, a Colts matchup, Vikings, Steelers, um, the Browns, the Ravens, the Chiefs. Those are going to be tough matchups if you don't have full health with your receiving core. But, I mean, you said it. Like, he, he screams, and I know this is a weird comp to do because Burrow is a more effective quarterback than what we've seen, but – he screams C.J. Stroud, where you could give them Tank Dell and Noah Brown. He's probably going to give you four, uh, 145 yards and two touchdowns because that's how good the quarterback play is. So as long as Joe Burrow is healthy, uh, that team is going to be successful. Now, one team that probably should already restart the clock on their quarterback search, T-Bone, the Carolina Panthers. Now, 
We're crazy because we're talking about a guy who's a rookie who has only played nine weeks of NFL football. But it is quite obvious that Bryce Young is not the guy for Carolina. 21 for 38 last night against Chicago. Chicago, a 56.8 QBR rating. Threw for 185 yards. And don't give me the, well, he doesn't have weapons. Like, cool. Neither did C.J. Stroud when he went to the Texans, and now he's got three guys that were all acting as if our, our wide receiver ones. The problem with this is you can't just move on from Bryce Young because you don't have any more first-round picks. You traded it. Talk about the ultimate win for the Bears. To the night. team that you just beat. God, that's bad. The Bears <laughs> win, which I guess in, at first when I see, you see that, you go, okay, that doesn't matter. And then you go, oh, wait, they probably just helped solidify the case for the number one overall pick yeah. that they're going to get from Carolina. Um, I I can't believe I'm saying it, too. I I think they'll run it back one more year with Bryce well, Young. you have to. Because he was the number one overall pick. But, I mean, like we saw, who was it, Josh? Was it Josh Rosen that was with, drafted by, was it Arizona? Yeah, and they, they got saw, Kyler. They saw one year, and they're like, ooh, no thanks. That was bad. Uh, or my, it may have been Miami that actually drafted him. But either way, I, I, I'm not seeing the steps that you'd like to see from a quarterback. You know, it'd be one thing if he struggles early on in the year. Because that, that's going to happen. A rookie adjusting to the NFL, speed of the NFL, life in the NFL. But I've seen no signs of improvement at all. And that is the most concerning thing for Bryce Young. So he's looking like a number one overall pick bust. And that's disappointing because I thought he was going to be the best quarterback coming out of this draft. I wasn't concerned about his size. He clearly must not be able to see over the O-line because he's only thrown for 195 yards per game. It's amazing to me all of everything that's coming in. It's like, guys, he's nine games into the season. The team is terrible. What are you talking about? Look at both teams' depth charts. Coming into the season, there were real people that were optimistic that the Carolina Panthers could compete in the NFC South. You've got well, that's a low bar. <laughs> get it, but Miles Sanders and Hubbard are your running backs. You've got Adam Thielen. You've got Marshall Jr. I know that these guys aren't like all pro receivers and weapons out there, but then look at the Houston Texans depth chart. I mean, nobody even knew anything about Tank Dell. You knew Nico Collins was good, but what were you thinking? Robert Woods was supposed to be the QB one, and this guy's like the fourth guy on their depth chart right now. There, yes, nine games, understandable. Give it another season before you make such a drastic move when you spend a number one overall draft pick. But it's pretty obvious that there are other two quarterbacks that have shown the ability to win with a bad team that Bryce Young has not been able to. And just, I mean, not only did I mention, you know, we haven't seen him even start to show any sign of taking sort of a step forward. I mean, we talked about it at the time, and it was alarming back on September 24th. When Bryce Young was out, missed that game. I can't remember what it was. I think it was an ankle injury, if I remember correctly. They start their backup, Andy Dalton. The offense looked significantly better with the red rifle. Yeah, Adam Thielen had a career day with Andy Dalton. We saw Andy Dalton throw for 361 yards in that game with this exact same offense. So, yes, it is totally – I understand the hold on, be patient. He's a number one pick. I think that is – fair but there is also a very fair reasons raise serious alarm bells with what we've seen from him because he just looks like he is not a nfl quarterback he doesn't look ready i just look at this the most throws uh passing yards he's had in the game 247 against the lions he hasn't even come close to that 347 mark that dalton threw the wild part too is people are like oh well it's the head coach it's the head coach guys people were raving about frank reich as the head coach for a bryce young thinking man this is the perfect system for him to be in and this team all 
it's very evident, and I love the Josh Rosen comp because it took that team one year to say, not nah, he's not the guy. The only issue with this is you're going to watch a top pick that you could have had go to the Chicago Bears this upcoming offseason. And frankly, if they're, if they're in any position, depending on what Justin Fields does the rest of the way, they might be taking that QB1 that you might be looking at saying, damn, I wish we could have had him. So we'll get more into an NFL week look ahead later on in the show. But coming up next, it's Ask Us Anything. It's a Friday, which means you throw any questions our way. We'll answer them. 314-399-9646. That's our Air Comfort Service text line. We're also up on our YouTube page 101 ESPN STL ask us anything next on 101 ESPN we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN you've got questions we may have the answers maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN 314-399-9646. That is our Air Comfort Service text line. We are back up and running on our YouTube page at 101 ESPN STL, which is sponsored by the Air Alliance team. It is time for Ask Us Anything. No BK today. He'll be back with us on Tuesday. Tanner Hendrickson, Alex Ferrario here at the Centene Community Ice Center at our ENB Granite Studios. Let's start with this one. Fellas, any plans that you're planning for this upcoming Thanksgiving. Are you staying in town? You go out of town. T-Bone goes back home to O'Neill, Illinois, and uh, they find their own turkeys and no, cook them. No, we're, we're, I don't live on a tar- turkey farm. T-Bone goes hunting for white squirrels. Oh, you can't do that. That's illegal. <laughs> um, my plans are just to go home. I, have, I know I've already taken off uh, two days for our Thanksgiving. Yeah, no more weekend. vacation days for you. No, no. I have, I'm just borrowing from BK's unlimited stash. <laughs> Touche. Um I, I'm just going to go home. I don't think there's any, like, big plans. I, our family doesn't typically do, like, a big hoopla on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of relaxed, go home, and it's just kind of me and my close family. So no, nothing big, just going home, I'd say. Yep. We, uh, we're we hosting for the first year of Thanksgiving. Ooh. We typically go to my sister's no or pressure my there. parents. Yeah, man. We got, we got my family coming over, which is a lot of people. I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is like the, the unsung hero of holidays. Because what I, better is it than, than – just overdoing it on food, cooking and eating-wise, and then just unbuttoning the pants, sitting in a chair, and watching television. Huh? It is a dream. And, and then we and play you know cards I mean? every Thanksgiving, oh, too. That's good, because my family always plays, or at least me and my dad, um, always play pickup basketball before the meal. We play a little pickup basketball uh, like at halftime of that first football game, and then by the time we come in, it's basically time for the Thanksgiving meal. There you go. See, uh, from the three one four guys, which former Cardinal will the team sign this off season? I think Got your Molina. Well, can you sign him? Yeah, oh, you bring them, have, they're bringing him back. Yeah, on, on the coaching. Stuff. Oh, I thought you meant like backup catcher. Yeah, you know, no. it's Michael Waka. Like, if there's the the most likely out of all of them, it's gonna be Waka. Yeah, I, I think Waka definitely for sure. Another name that I'd throw out here, and I mentioned this. I don't know if you were in the office when I brought this up the other day or not. Uh, John Brebia. 
John Brebbia, free agent. This oh, yeah, that's a good season. one. Um, now, he doesn't have a ton of swing and miss, um, but he's a decent – he's a good – he's dealt with injuries, he's but he's versatile. a solid bullpen arm. Mm-hmm. Solid bullpen arm. Bring him in. He could be in kind of that middle relief corner. He probably costs you like maybe not even $5 million bucks. I could see where if you bring in one top-end reliever, maybe Brebbia is that second guy that you bring in. So I could, I would throw his name out here, but I definitely think Walk is most likely. Uh, final one. Let's do this one from the 636. Guys, do you think the Oilers are in the same spot as the Blues were last season? No, I think they're in a completely different spot. Um, I think they have they have a coach problem. I, I really do. I think they've got to get a coach that can find a way to get the best out of that team and not just two players. They rely so much on McDavid and Dreisaitl to score that if they get shut down like we saw last night against San Jose, they're not going to score. I think they got a little bit of the yips right now, but the Blues were in a position where they were transitioning into a different era of hockey. The Oilers, the only era of hockey they're in are McDavid and Dreisaitl, and if they don't win and start winning, you might be out of that era by next season. I'd say it's a little different, but they're more of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, absolutely. The worst than Toronto Maple Leafs, because at least Maple Leafs made the playoffs last year and then got bounced, what was that, first round or second round Mm -hmm. to Florida. Um, They're kind of in that spot, but in a worse position, because you're right, they're not in a transition. The Blues were on the verge of moving on from the O'Reilly Perron era to the Cairo and Thomas era. The Oilers, there is no transition. It is, in fact, okay, well, if this doesn't work, we probably got to just do something different to see if we can make it work with whoever they choose, whether it be Dreisaitl they decided to keep or McDavid. I would probably lean on the side of McDavid, but I, I think they're in a much worse spot than what the Blues were last year. He's Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario. Bradford Bruns back in our studio as well. Coming up next, Kylie McDaniel put a piece out yesterday on ESPN. The top 50 free agents projected contracts for all of them. We'll get into that with Kylie himself. He's joining us next here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK with us today. He will be back on Tuesday. Uh, And I'm sure he's disappointed in Austin, Texas right now because he always looks forward to our visits with Kylie McDaniel because I know it's off-season, T-Bone, when Kylie puts out his top 50 free agents and the contract projections. And when he does, we always reach out, and he's happily joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Kylie, it's great to talk, my man. Let's jump right into this one. I have seen... So many swirling projections for this top-tier market that isn't Shohei Otani, Yamamoto, and Snell, and Nola, areas that we're hoping the Cardinals are going to be diving heavy into. But are you believing what we're hearing of this $200 million for all of these guys? Uh, Not for all of them. I, I think Yamamoto, I thought... Uh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, would be in the 150, 160 area plus posting fee. Um, in part going ahead of Snell and Nola, more you know, proven entities at the big league level because he's 25 and has all the sort of markers of athleticism and command and also good stuff. Um, that it's essentially like a 25 year old version of Aaron Nola. If he was five years younger, you'd pay him a lot more. And I think, you know, Nola might get over 150. So it totally made sense. And then it sort of turned out that because this doesn't happen very often, a guy of, of Yamamoto's quality and age, and there's no 
draft pick that's being lost um, that every team has sort of put him at the top of their list. Like whether you're a small market team like the Rays that sees it as a potential investment because of his age or a team like the Yankees that doesn't want to lose a draft pick and needs a potential starter. Like every single team seems to be chasing this guy. So now the assumption is that just the contract will go over $200 million. I projected essentially seven times 30. So, uh, you know, call it roughly 210, I would say, is like the over-under. And that would be another 30 million to Oryx Buffaloes, which would then put him in the area of the overall package, challenging Steven Strasburg's $245 million deal for the second biggest pitcher contract of all time. So, Kylie, with that being said, do you think he's probably the first domino to fall in terms of the pitching market to where he's going to have to sign first before we start to then see, like, the Nolas and Snells get off the board? I, I, that is my assumption. I think the Otani deal, the Soto trade, and the Yamamoto contract uh, may be the three things that hold up a lot of the offseason because it would it would seem weird to me that almost any team on Snell or Nola, I think, would at least be kicking the tires on Yamamoto. And it looks like he should be starting his 45-day posting period in the next couple of days, which would then put it around Christmas. Uh, so I could totally see the sort of $75 million and up uh, guaranteed money starting pitcher market waits until Christmas for him to sign. Then everyone can make their move later. I could also see that sort of top tier um, Bellinger, Matt Chapman, maybe even the Teoscar Hernandez sort of $50, $60 million hitter market waiting until the Juan Soto deal and the Otani deal. Uh, to then sort of sort themselves out because I think teams want to do the big stuff first and then you know which $10 million your guy you need to fill in a hole that you have. Uh, particularly with San Diego, they need to add pitching. They might add the pitchers they need in a trade with Soto. So their offseason would look very different depending on if they do the trade and who they get for Juan Soto. And the reason I ask that question, Kylie, is I, I wonder if the Cardinals look at that and go, okay, maybe we're not going to get in on this bidding war if there are potentially 10 to 20 teams and trying to get the first domino to fall. Is that where maybe the Cardinals could then just kind of slide in and say, let's jump the market. Let's see if we can get a Blake Snell or Aaron Nola. And with those two guys, which one do you think probably fits best with the St. Louis Cardinals? Well, I wrote in the blurbs of my free agent thing. I've been an Aaron Nola believer since the beginning. He went, I believe, seventh overall back in, oh boy, what was that, like 2015? And I thought he should have gone first or second. Um, and I think he is a better pitcher than Blake Snell right now. I think he's also going to age better. I think he also in style matches the kinds of pitchers that uh, the Cardinals go after. I also think he's going to be cheaper than Snell. So all the way across the board, Aaron, or Aaron Nola should be who the Cardinals are chasing. And if they go, you know, five for 130 140 i'm not going to say that gets it done immediately but i think he is worth say 175 that carlos rodon deal that the yankees handed out last year i think snell might get that rodon deal i don't think nola will so if you go somewhere in that area the 150 140 range that might be enough to get him off the board before yamamoto moves and as you're saying sort of jump the market i also think philly may be looking not at we have to resign nola but we need to get a pitcher to replace him if he leaves. It sounds like they're really uh, scanning the market with Jordan Montgomery, Sonny Gray, maybe making a trade. Uh, I don't think they're going to just top whatever offer you put out there. So I think a quick move from St. Louis for NOLA makes the most sense and may also be like the most likely way they would attack things. We're talking with Kylie McDaniel, MLB insider for ESPN. He's got his top 50 free agents um, and contract project projections up on ESPN's website right now, uh, joining us here on 101 ESPN. So, so Kylie, when 
when you step away from that top tier, the Cardinals have made it very clear that they need to pursue two starting pitchers at the top of their rotation. The top of the tier is something that all of St. Louis is, is hoping and praying for that the Cardinals go after. But then you get to that next tier. Is that only Sonny Gray, or are there other guys that you feel like should fall into the conversation for the Cardinals to fill out that top two rotation? Sonny Gray is the one I would go after uh, because I, you could argue he's the best right now pitcher of all of them anyway. And because he's 34, it would only take, I think, a three-year commitment. Um, I think if he suddenly he's getting, you know, $100 million, let's say, that's probably a little too much for him. I think you could talk about Eduardo Rodriguez. He's only 30 years old, lefty, just had a good season. There's going to be some questions about how he turned down the trade of the Dodgers. Um, you'll have to work all that out. But I think he is – you could definitely make a case that he is just as good of an option as is Shoto Imanaga lefty coming over from Japan, who's also a 30-year-old lefty. Uh, I think he may be just as good as those guys, just hasn't done it in the big leagues, but all the markers are there. He's essentially a lefty version of Sonny Gray and is younger, so there also could be a little bit of value there. Uh, And because of Yamamoto, might get lost in the shuffle a little bit. He's also a free agent, so there's not going to be any posting fee on top of that. So I think he's going to fall in that 60 to $80 million range, and I think there might be some real value there, whereas I think Sonny Gray, Eduardo Rodriguez, Jordan Montgomery, some of those other guys – you're kind of paying for what you're going to get, maybe even overpaying a little bit because these guys are a little bit more known entities. And I think once you get below that group, maybe Marcus Stroman would be in that group as well. But once you get below that, then you're talking about guys that I think are going to get 25 to 35 million, only two or three year deals. They're kind of fourth, fifth starters. You know, you're kind of Seth Lugo, Michael Lorenzen, Sean Manaya, those guys that don't really solve a problem. They just sort of plug a hole. Uh, so I think then that's, that's sort of the universe of guys you're talking about. Does that then force the Cardinals into going down the trade path instead of signing two guys via free agency? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at what their payroll was last year, assuming there will be a small increase, uh, they don't have room to sign, say, Nola for $25 million and Gray for $22 million. Uh, that wouldn't be there. They'd have to clear a little bit of money, too. And so then if, say, Dakota Hudson, who's on an expiring deal, Tyler O'Neill, who's on an expiring deal in their last year of arbitration do you then make room for some of the young guys to step into those spots you then can clear another 10 12 million dollars that then gives you the room to sign two free agents or you hold on to those guys and maybe then you trade one of the younger bats to i guess the the very rumored move whoever's got extra young bats seattle's shopping with brian Wu, bryce miller george kirby and logan gilbert depending on what quality hitter you're bringing back i think that's definitely on the table as well um, I think there's like sort of two different areas, two different routes you could go in that area. Do you want to go fully free agent and clear out the money to pay those guys? Or do you want to sort of shuffle? You have a real clear point of view on which of these hitters are keepers and which ones seem like extra guys. And maybe there's a way to get an asymmetrical return going down the trade market. I don't have information to say which one of those is smartest, but I think those are the two sort of clear routes to get the two starting pitchers that the Cardinals need. Kylie, if it goes to, you mentioned that, if they go to the trade route, the guy that we've talked about potentially is Dylan Cease and potentially Nolan Gorman going the other way. Would you be hesitant if you're the St. Louis Cardinals to pluck a, a major piece of your offense in Nolan Gorman from your lineup to go out there and trade for a number one starter? Sure. I mean, you always have to be, if you're getting a, a you know limited amount of control uh, on Cease and giving up a lot of control on a guy that could be a corner piece type bat, for a short-term uh, pitcher and see, like you always have to hesitate on that. And that's why I was saying you need to be open to multiple different tiers of pitcher, uh, ideally with more control. Uh, but it obviously sees is a very talented guy because there's so many young hitters. The Cardinals can trade. This is how you avoid. I mean, you're not going to love me saying this, but losing another, uh, you know, Rose Reina or Dolis Garcia, like you have to be able to scout yourself better than everyone else. And so if you're hesitant, 
to trade a guy because you're like, ooh, there's five guys here. One of them, at least one of them's going to be really good. I don't want to trade one. We don't have the certainty here. That is not how winning teams make decisions. You can't operate out of fear. You have to know what you have and be able to make a bold move to fix things. Uh, and so if they just go the free agent route, that might suggest that either they're not sure about which guy they want to trade or just the value wasn't there. They didn't see a deal that was worth taking. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're not sure what you have, you're, you've got a real problem. You've got to solve that first. You know, Kylie, one one report that we saw over the last couple of days, which I'm not asking you to confirm or deny, but let's go down this hypothetical path together, brought up the Toronto Blue Jays potentially trading away Alec Manoa, and they brought up Dylan Carlson going the other way. Regardless of who goes the other way, would an Alec Manoa intrigue you if you're in the Cardinals' position? Yeah, because this is the absolute buy low on a guy that I think has the intangibles in terms of the you know bulldog attitude, does it in the big moments, uh, all that sort of stuff that like say teams like about Lance Lynn, even though he had a terrible season. Teams they're saying to me they think he's got to get a two year deal after being one of the worst pitchers in the big leagues this year. I think Manoa has those intangibles, and very recently was seen as a potential ace. Like I was getting votes for him in my ace rankings that he should be one of the 12 or 13 guys. And I think that was what, like 18 months ago. Um, so the idea that you could get him for uh, what would that be? Two, I guess it'd be three years of Carlson uh, that you could argue if Carlson, you don't think is a core piece. You think he's more of a nice to have platoon lower end starter. And you think Manoa, you have a point of view on what that solution is there. Uh, I absolutely think that's something you should think about uh, because that is, you don't get a, a chance uh, often to buy low on a potential ace if you think you know what's wrong or have an idea to just turning him into a third or fourth starter. That's a another low-cost route in the trade market where you're not paying a retail price for George Kirby. Uh, you're kind of moving a little bit down uh, the sort of cost area and maybe even the impact area, but you've got a chance for a big impact, which is kind of what you want to be doing. It's almost like the the variance or the sort of return you could get with a prospect, where it's like Tink Hens could come up and be fantastic, or he could be not very good for three straight years and then kind of figures it out later. That's kind of what you're talking about with Manoa. You don't really know what you're going to get, but you'll probably get something, and it could be really good, which is like not very common with pitchers. Kylie, final question for me. We've talked a lot about the starting pitching. I, I want to talk about the relief market because though the Cardinals have said they need three starters, they also seem interested in trying to find some bullpen help as well. And, and in your piece, you have a handful of guys projected to be around $10 million on multi-year deals. I, I don't know if the Cardinals will go splash at the top of the market in the relief relief bin, but how, how deep do you think the relief market is this free agency period? Uh, it's not great at the top end. You got Josh Hader, then I think there's a pretty big gap. And then I think you have Jordan Hicks, which, you know, I don't, I don't know what the Cardinals feel about him, but I think there's some real upside there after having like sort of a breakout year this year. And then beyond him, it then gets a little muddled where you have, say, Yariel Rodriguez uh, coming over from NPB as a Cuban pitcher that might be a reliever, might be a starter, is going to be talking about, you know, say, $30, $40 million potentially. Um, you also have Rolf Chapman, Craig Kimbrell, very sort of known entities. Uh, Robert Stevenson, who has been just okay basically his whole career and then went to Tampa Bay for a few months and now looks like he's going to get $30 million, uh, might be a setup man re- like closer. Like it could just be another one of those guys that the race figured out, or it could be he was good for 30 innings. He's not actually very good. And then as you move down a little bit further, there's guys where, again, if you have like that point of view on like, oh, we think we can unlock something here, Ronaldo Lopez might be had for under $20 million. Uh, Yuki Matsui, a lefty uh, that is free agent, no posting, coming over from MPB. That's sort of a lefty with a splitter, that very familiar type of pitcher that has come over and been successful. Um, Hector Neris is 34, but you could probably get him for under $15 million. 
Uh, I agree. They need to get a pitcher. I think if you go below that list of guys I just gave you, you're probably not solving the issue. So I think you need to get one of those guys, but you could justify almost any of them being good enough if you kind of like what you have and just want to add to it, as opposed to you need to get an eighth or ninth inning, or I guess hopefully it's like the ninth inning guy. But if you feel like you have to get a slam dunk eighth inning guy or you're in trouble, I'm not sure even sure the bottom of that list is really going to solve that problem. You have to go toward the top. He's Kylie McDaniel. You can check out his work at ESPN.com. Of course, follow him on Twitter at KylieMCD, uh, ESPN Baseball Insider. Kylie, always appreciate the time, man. Great stuff on your piece with the uh, contract projections, and uh, we'll be talking, I guess, in about a month or so to see if you were spot on with them all. Yeah, and I'm sure the Cardinals will be a shoe-in for the playoffs by the time I come back on. Well, they will be for about a week, and then people will be underwhelmed for the uh, free agent signings, and then we got to go through six months of finding out what's going to happen. So it'll always be good, Kylie. I'm here for the whipsaw of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. He's Kylie McDaniel. Appreciate him joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Uh, a couple of things that, that we can react to here, T-Bone. One, I think he made it very clear, like, Yamamoto, put it aside. Not happening. And, and he's right. Like, if you're in the waters for Nola and Snell, then you should be in the waters for Yamamoto. But there's a difference between the Yankees and the Giants and the Red Sox and the Dodgers being in those waters and the Cardinals being in those waters. Like, there's a spot where you just start to say, I can't go any further, I'm drowning. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's so much the teams that are involved in it. It's just the price. Yeah. $200 million, I mean... I think the Cardinals are going to have about forty to fifty million dollars to operate with. And that's with. everything and, with the posting fee. Exactly. And if you're going to give out thirty mil, and my assumption again, we've said this, and we're not reporting this by any means. My assumption is they would put the posting fee into this year's budget. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then you're essentially just getting Yamamoto and off seasons over. Yeah. And, they and that have, doesn't fix all your issues. I can see where they can kind of convince convince themselves where, okay, we add two starters and then we have Thompson or somebody that's a swing man and maybe you bring in one bullpen arm and they say, okay, we think we fix things. They can't look at it and go, okay, well, we got Yamamoto, offseason's over, and now we're good to go for 2024. Yeah. There's no there's no way they can squint and even say that that possibly could work. So that's where you hear him say Nola over Snell, Sonny Gray would be the main target. I got to tell you, though, d I always go back to this Manoa thing after we heard about it these last couple of days. It's an intriguing opportunity in front of them that I know could blow up in your face of the guy turning out to be nothing, but it also was one of those things of you trading a guy that you don't really have a distinguished role for next year for somebody that fills a massive hole that you absolutely need. And you could be talking about signing an ace or signing a top guy. You could be talking about bringing in a number two and then also getting a guy who's considered right now a five but becomes a number one later in the season. Yeah, he's an interesting one, and I, I don't mind bringing in Manoa. It, it, I know I pushed back against it yesterday if you trade Carlson. The more I thought about it, the more I'm, I'm more in on it because of what Kylie said. You are buying low on a guy that is a potential ace, and I'm not sure he'll get back to that because when things fall off like they did for Manoa, something is there. Um, but I, it's an interesting idea. Now, I wouldn't do it if you're only going to get two starters. If you say we're going to sign Aaron Nola and then we can only get one more and the idea is to trade for Manoa, I wouldn't do that. I would look for more certainty. But if you are willing to go down that route of let's get three starters and we're willing to make that third guy be a bounce-back candidate, yeah, I'd be in on the Alec Manoa route. And it is a very interesting one. I also liked what he said about the bullpen too, by yeah. the way. Because I asked him that question because I, if you sign an Aaron Nola, and I know we're going to talk about this here shortly, if you sign an Aaron Nola and you sign a Sonny Gray, you don't have much money, if any money at all, to go out and improve the bullpen unless you're making trades. 
I don't know if they're going to be shopping near the top of that market, the Jordan Hicks route, the, I hope not, the Josh Hader route, the Stevenson route. I think all those guys are going to get too many years and too much, I wouldn't say too much money, but too many years. I don't want a guy on a three-, four-year deal in the bullpen. I I wonder what they're going to do with the bullpen. I, I think they could find a sneaky good, like, diamond-in-the-rough player on the free agent market for, like, $5 bucks. But I, I'm fascinated to know what they do with this bullpen because I, I think they do need to add an arm that can pitch in the later innings. Well, let's continue that conversation. We'll get into the Blues power play coming up in 1230. But coming up next, like if they want a top reliever, if the Cardinals want a top reliever this offseason, how does that affect other moves? Because it might force them into the trade market. We'll continue that conversation next year on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario, Bradford Bruns here as well. He's back in our studios. We are at the E&B Granite Studios here at Centene Community Ice Center. If you just missed it, we talked with Kylie McDaniel of ESPN Baseball Insider, uh, who yesterday put out his projections for the top 50 free agents. You can check it out if you missed it afterwards up on our podcast page, 101ESPN.com, which is presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. But... What we were talking about before we hit the break was something that Kylie McDaniel brought up, talking about the top relievers on the market. And really, uh, there's nobody that's overwhelmingly great other than Josh Hader, T-Bone. And I think we've all agreed the amount of money you're paying for a Josh Hader and the type of guy it seems he is doesn't mesh well with what this Cardinals team is looking for. But beyond that, we're talking about guys that you're squinting to push them into a seventh or eighth inning role, a setup role. And let's be honest, that's the desperation spot for this Cardinals team at most in the bullpen. It's finding somebody who is a setup guy. And if we are operating under the assumption it's 45 to $50 million that this team is going to be spending all offseason, you're not going to have a lot of bucks to spend on bullpen arms. So if you want a guy, if you want a top reliever or somebody who, who – identifies as a 7th or 8th inning setup man, I think we're talking about you either spending a lot of money and trading for your number one starter or spending the money on your number one starter and trading for that bullpen arm. I don't think there's an area where you can sign both of them and be happy. Yeah, I think you're right because, again, we're operating under the assumption the Cardinals probably have like $40, $50 million to spend, maybe a little bit more. But again, when you look at all the projections that we're seeing, using Kylie McDaniels, using Fangraphs, using Jim Bowden's, everybody that's put contract projections out there, all those top-end starters outside Yamamoto are sitting around that $25 million range. And if you have $40 million, you bring in a top guy, Gray going to make around twenty. there's your $45 million, you're done. And I think they have to add a bullpen arm this offseason, at minimum one. I, I think the goal still should be two bullpen arms. They've definitely got to add one, though. And I think this is where they're going to have to come to the conclusion of, okay, do we trade for the number one starter? That way we can still spend on, spend in that second tier, get a good, solid number two starter like a Sonny Gray and Eduardo Rodriguez, a Imanaga, one of those three, and then you still have some money for that number five swingman, and you've got money for a bullpen arm. 
Or I think they do have enough, to, and based on what we talked about a little bit yesterday, I think there still may, might be some value out there for Tyler O'Neill, which I know sounds weird to say. Same for Dylan Carlson. Can you maybe switch one of those guys, flip one of those guys, and get a bullpen arm that can kind of fit into that sixth, seventh inning role? But they definitely have to add to the bullpen. They cannot come into this upcoming season in 2024 and not add anybody to the pin and go, well, we claimed that guy off of waivers from Seattle. We're hoping Wilking Rodriguez has a bounce back here. No, no, those should be the depth pieces. You still got to go out there and find somebody that can kind of slide ahead of JoJo Romero in my mind. Is it weird that that's what I feel like the Cardinals are going to do? They're just going to sign. They're going to claim a couple of guys. We already saw them claim one player off of waivers. It was a bullpen arm. You know, they'll, they'll get somebody in the 40-man or the um, the uh, God, what am I blanking on the the draft? Rule five draft. Yeah, the rule five draft, and they'll sign a couple of guys that combine to be five million dollars. That's how I feel the Cardinals are going to address the bullpen. And honestly, I'm not upset about it because, well, I'd be upset about it because I know that the Cardinals won't do this. But it's a smart move if you sign the guys, spend the money on your rotation and then say, we'll throw numbers at our bullpen and expect the best out of Helsley, Gallegos, Romero, Libertor, and if it doesn't work, you can always go trade for that bullpen arm. I, because there's not guys that are available this free agency that I look at and say, that's who I need on my team. I So I I understand that, but I, I think that's what happens with a lot of bullpen arms. You know, I, I think most bullpen arms, like I couldn't have told you half the guys that were in that Diamondbacks bullpen until they got to the World Series. Like yeah. I didn't even know about this Sal, Sal Brink guy. I'm not even sure that's his name still. Um, so he changed I, his name? <laughs> he may have. I, I probably got it that's wrong. When you know you're good. But I, I, I think you still have to bring in pieces to do it. Like I, I've brought up names and like Emilio Pagan. He's not in any contract projections. Why? Because he's probably going to get like a one-year $5 million deal. Like just bring in pieces that you can look at and go, okay, we think if this guy ends up hitting, we're get, we're paying him $5 million bucks, and he's going to be a guy that's going to be right in that sixth, seventh inning role. He, him and JoJo can kind of rotate depending on matchups. I think they have to do that because I don't think they've got depth in the bullpen. And I know they're trying to add to that by claiming this guy off of waivers. They're hoping. Now, Wilking Rodriguez is still here. I, I think he's going to be because I think they would have probably DFA'd him already. But if he's still going to be here, he has to be on the major league roster because he did not lose that Rule 5 status because he was hurt all year long. I think they're they just need to bring in more guys, but not just bring in guys that are oh okay we claimed a guy off of waivers that's been up and down between the majors and minors. No, get a guy that has experience. It doesn't necessarily have to have closing experience, but has pitched in high leverage innings before. That's why I mentioned a Emilio Pagan. That's why I liked Pierce Johnson before he resigned with uh, the Atlanta Braves. They need to add in at least one bullpen arm. That way you feel comfortable about it because if JoJo or Helsley or Gallegos went down. Who's the next arm that kind of steps into that high-leverage spot? Matthew Libertor. We got a great look at him at the end of the season. Didn't you see? They felt great about how he pitched. I thought he was good, but I wouldn't put him in a high-leverage spot yet. He'll have to earn that. But that's why they have to bring in another arm to provide more depth to this bullpen. Yeah. Um, you know, and this was the question that the fast lane presented uh, yesterday, which it was directed towards the starting pitching rotation, but I also think it ties into the bullpen. If the Cardinals just sign. If they just sign two pitchers that fit into the one and two spot in your rotation, is that enough to be the central division favorite? Knowing that the Cubs are going to be ultra aggressive. I'd say no, because I think they have to add a bullpen arm. Uh, As much as we talk about the starting pitching, and yes, the starting pitching was bad this year, 
we always kept going back to the bullpen and how they had the most blown saves in baseball or near the top in blown saves in baseball. Like, the bullpen killed the Cardinals this year, too. And part of the reason, because they didn't have enough depth. So, though they definitely need to add two starting pitchers and probably a third as well, the bullpen needs to be addressed. And it needs to be addressed. Again, doesn't have to be with a Josh Hader. doesn't have to be with a Jordan Hicks. Can you go find some of those guys that are diamonds in the rough? Kind of like, not this pitcher, but like they brought in Drew Verhagen to be what? The swing man. And he ended up becoming a bullpen arm. If Drew Verhagen ends up working out on a two-year, $5 million deal, that's a steal for the Cardinals. Can you find yeah, a better version of Drew Verhagen? finding those guys. Yeah, well, that's where they, this is where, it, this is such a crucial offseason for the front office. Not only do they got to find three starters, they got to find bullpen arms that work out. Like, they have to improve the bullpen. Otherwise, adding starters, don't get me wrong, it's going to help you. You're not going to lose 90 games, but I'm not sure you're going to win 90 to become a playoff team and win the NL Central. Yeah, I'm with you, and I, I agree. I think you have to get another top reliever, which once again leads us to you're going to have to enter the trade conversation for something of significance, whether it's acquiring a Dylan Cease, a Logan Gilbert, and signing that top arm, or acquiring somebody's bullpen piece that you can put into one of those spots so that you can be presented as a top team in the Central. I don't think it just comes with signing two guys or getting two starting pitchers and calling it a day. It's Tanner Hendricks in him, Alex Ferrario, Bradford Brunts as well. We got to get to it. I don't like it. You don't like it. I guarantee the Blues don't like it. The power play issues. Let's discuss. Can we decline those? We probably should. Is there a is there a obvious area that you can fix this power play with. We'll discuss that and Scott Perunovich next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So what's the deal with this power play? question I'm sure everybody's asking, asking after an 0 for 7 night last night. You go 0 for on a 5 on 3 where you are on the ice for two straight minutes and a power play that is now 1 for 35 this season. They are 0 for 18 on home ice. So right now there are some power play issues uh, for the St. Louis Blues. And last night, 0 for 7 with eight total shots. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Alex Ferrario. Look, Let's start with this. The power play has been inconsistent. I, As bad as it's been, there have been times that you look at it and say, oh, damn, that looks good. You just didn't score. Now, I understand. You got to score to be good, Alex. I don't care about expected goals. Yeah, who cares about expected goals? <laughs> but that game against uh, Winnipeg, I thought that first power play that they had, that the, the goal didn't go in off of Buchnevich, Brennan Dillon saved it, the defenseman. That felt to me as as good of a power play that we've seen all season. It felt like it was on all cylinders. And then you saw last night's game. And I got to be honest with you, T-Bone, I don't think this has anything to do with the structure or the scheme that's in place. I think this is just has everything to do with actually converting on the power play. I think this group of guys have the yips right now to where they realize that if I don't win this faceoff or if I don't score – Prior to the other team clearing the zone, we're not getting back into the zone. It feels like there is so much pressure on the group of guys that are out there that that's what's plaguing them. I mean, man, 
Robert Thomas last night, I think he took three or four hacks at the door with his stick by the time he got back to the bench. You can see the frustration building. This, to me, doesn't have anything to do. Somebody messaged me last night, you know, social media is a great place to be uh, when things are going poorly, but they said, who's the power play coach? You need to fire him right now. Oh, you're talking about the power play coach that had the third best power play, the sixth best power play, and the second best power play in the National Hockey League for three straight seasons. This is more about a personnel problem than it's a coach problem, but I also think it's just a converting problem. I, And I think the reason it's a converting problem is they don't have the personnel for it. And, uh, agreed. And, and that's my thing is – as much as I'm sure people are saying, you know, fire the power play coach, like I, I Which don't is think amazing anybody, to me. Like, who fires an assistant coach in the middle of the season? I, I, I don't, I don't think that's the answer. I just don't think they've got the guys that can score on a power play. I mean, look at what they have on the power play. What are the two things that we've talked about that really, really kind of separate a power play in the National Hockey League? You got to have a one-time shot. Mm-hmm. Who's the guy on the power play is doing that? Vrana, but he's on the second unit right now. And right now, I don't think you have one on that and, number one and, unit. And they're trying on that second unit because last night they had Falk taking a couple uh, when Perunovic was quarterback in that second unit, and even when Krug was out there as well when he got pushed down to that second unit. They just don't have a one-time shot that is a true threat. Those power plays that you mentioned that were second, third, and six, what did they had? They had David Perron, who was a one-time threat that was a lethal threat, that any time that you sent the pass his way, you'd go, okay, if he one-times this, there's a 50-50 shot, we've got ourselves a goal here. So they're missing that. And then I think last night, like, I wasn't that impressed with the power play last night at all in all seven attempts. Um, they, they, they don't have the bodies in front of the net. They don't have the one-time shot. So when you go to get those wristers, you've got to be screening the goalie. And they're not doing that right now. Last night, a couple of those shots they took, they would take a shot. I think Thomas had one on the power play where he takes the shot, and there's just nobody in, in front of him. Or I think it was Vrana. Vrana took a shot. Nobody in front of the goalie. The goalie can track it the whole way. They're just not They're not crowding the space of the goaltender on the power play. They're not, they're not getting a one-time shot because they don't have one for these power play units. And I also think at times the puck movement is a little bit slow. The decision-making is a little bit slow. And that all leads to everything just to your point, mounting on this team where they're feeling the pressure. And you can definitely tell that, but I think that is also just, I don't think they've got the guys that can execute on the power play. I think it's a personnel issue, and I don't know how it gets fixed. It's too much of, I, I don't think anything does fix it. I think the guys are the guys. And what I mean by they don't have the, the, the talent, I'm not saying that the individuals don't, because all of those guys are power play guys. They're all talented enough. You just don't have that one-time threat. You don't have that ability to pass, pass, shoot. It's pass, pass, oh, here's one more pass. Or pass, pass, hold on, I got to get it because it's in between my skates. If the passes aren't crisp, then the shots aren't fast enough because some of the best power plays, it's not even just one-timers, T-Bone. It's you're making the entire unit move from side to side. You are so strong. And I mean, I'm looking at the top power plays right now. Like the top five are New Jersey, New York Rangers, Tampa, Vancouver, and Toronto. All of those units are moving the puck so fast. I mean, it's tape to tape to tape that if you're the goaltender, you're swinging from post to post to post. You don't know where you're stopping. You pull the four defensemen that are the four players that are on the penalty kill to one side of the ice so that the other side's wide open. But if your pass isn't crisp onto the stick of the other player, it doesn't matter if you're a one-time shot or if you're somebody who could just quickly wrist it you're not getting the shot off fast enough. By the time you get it off, all four guys are in front and the goaltender's right there. And if you don't have bodies in front, it's not going to have success with this. So it truly does feel like this power play just needs one to go off of somebody's 
it needs to be like a deflection off of the opponent's stick or hit the goaltender and roll in just so they can get a breath of fresh air. I hear people saying, change up the units. You've changed up the units, and it's not working. Yeah, I, you put Perunovic on the number one unit last night. It looked fine, but it, nothing changes. Yeah, I, I think the only thing left now at this point is probably putting Perunovic on that top unit. And maybe, has Verona been up there? I'm, if he has, he's been up there just for just a yeah, I mean, split they, second. Yeah, I mean, they switched the units to where Thomas and Kairou split apart. I think for a stretch there, the units were Thomas, Verona, Shen, Saad, and one That's defenseman, right. and then the other one was a, like a, a group that had Kairou on it. So, so they've switched them. So like the only thing that they've got left to do is to give a full game maybe to Prunovich on that top unit. But again, like I, I'm not saying it's all just Tory Krug's fault. No, on the power God, play. no. So that that's not what we're saying. It's just they don't have that one time threat, and when you don't have that, every time that you have to stop the puck and then get the wrist shot off is that split second. That's enough for what you were saying, where the goalie can then slide to that post. And I, I think the part that is building frustration minus the one for whatever it is, 37, is I, I think this you, – you know I'm one of the most skeptical on this Blues team coming into the year. I think they're basically what – what they've been so far is kind of what I expected. Yeah. Except I thought it would be better offense uh, and lesser defense, and it's been the opposite of that. Absolutely. Um, but I thought they'd be right around a 500 team coming into this year. And right now that's what they look like. The thing is, is I, I think you could definitely put a stamp of this is a playoff team if the power play was just average. Oh, yeah. Because – there, we've talked about it, and it happened again last night, and we mentioned this in our Open. Um, there are games where it is, okay, the power play can either A, get momentum back for you, or B, help you really kind of start to pull away in this game. Mm-hmm. Last night, I feel like that perfect chance. I know it was the first period, but it's a two-minute full five-on-three power oh, play. Oh, yeah, you could have ended that game. You could have got up 2 nothing. You have all the momentum in that first period. You don't score. Coyotes get a power play. They score, and it's 1-1, and it's, well, what just happened? There have been multiple times this year where I think the power play, if it is an average power play, is a difference maker for the Blues, and I think they have probably four more points on their on the board for them. Like I think it is that much of a difference for this team to where if this power play was league average, slightly above league average, I think we're talking about a team that we are already talking about as, hey, I think they're going to make the playoffs, not, okay, can they get into the playoffs? Uh, one guy I did want to talk about that got power play time last night, I-, I thought he looked good, but what was more impressive was his five-on-five play was Scott Perunovic. Scott Perunovic proved everything he needed to prove that he deserves to be in the lineup for an extended period of time. Uh, I mean, he, at five-on-five last night, he had he his line had 12 shot attempts compared to the other team's five shot attempts. His team had seven shots on goal compared to the other team's two. And we're talking about a pairing of he and Marco Scandella that had a .11 expected goals post-game against the other team's line and a .003 expected goals allowed. And I know some people don't like that stat, but basically to me that means Scott Perunovic and Marco Scandella as a pair were just as solid defensively at 5-on-5 as they were offensively. And that's massive for Scott Perunovic. You know the offense will come when he gets his opportunities. It's how does he play defensively. And that's one game where he sat for 13 straight days and didn't play. And he came into that game against that fast team and performed well. So I I loved what I saw from Scott Perunovic last night. It's going to take time. People can't jump on this and say, well, he's not producing. Put it back up in the press box. The the offense and the points will come, 
But right now, defensively, he was so good at exiting out of the zone that you need to keep him in the lineup. Yeah, I thought he was very noticeable in the good way last night. And, and it was getting pucks out, moving the puck well. And even defensively, at one point, I remember him going into a corner and helping kind of pin the guy into the boards. I think the Blues get the puck and exit the zone. Like, I thought him and Scandella, to your point, I thought they looked really good. I, too. I, I, I think that's the pairing that I, I don't know if it's going to work all like the rest of the year. Like, hey, there we go. We found our third pairing for the final, whatever it is, 70 games of the season. But I wouldn't mind seeing it for about a five-game stretch here. See what it looks like against Colorado. See what it looks like for the next handful of games. I I thought last night was the most encouraging we saw from Perunovic, and maybe that was because he was able to get in the flow. You know, he had, I think it was 13 minutes of ice, 14.51 of total ice time, unlike when they ran the seven defensemen where he was really the seventh guy and barely barely saw any playing time. I, I liked what we saw. That That is kind of what I think they are hoping to see from Scott Perunovic this season. And I... I saw enough to where I'm like, okay, I, I want to see more. And I think that's the best thing for the Blues. It, it gives you a chance to see what you have in this highly touted prospect that you've had for so many years that just hasn't been able to stay healthy. Yeah, well, we'll see if he's in the lineup tomorrow night against Colorado. I would anticipate it, especially for a team that skates fast like the Colorado Avalanche does. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. That game tomorrow night is 8 o'clock puck drop, which means I've got your first community credit union pregame starting at 7. Coming up next, we'll dive into the junk drawer here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trust wings in Missouri. Dine in, carry out, seven days a week. Junk drawer here on BK and Ferrario as we are at the ENB Granite Studios at Centene Community Ice Center. We're live on YouTube, our 101 ESPN STL YouTube page, which is presented by Air Alliance Team. And T Bone's got a story that says it's going to piss me off, so <laughs> it's a Friday. All right, so I, you've got two girls. Um, and I'm sure you've taken them out to a restaurant before where you guys go out to eat. I, I'm assuming you've done that. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you get the bill for your meal. You look at it, and you see there's a label, in quotations, adult surcharge. <laughs> there's a restaurant over in England that is doing adult surcharges where it is adding a $50 fee to your bill for what they are saying is you you cannot control your kids. Poor child behavior. So if your kids are acting up at this restaurant and it's pissing somebody off, they will add a $50 surcharge oh to your ticket. I would uh, I would be livid. First of all, why are we parent shaming? Like, get the hell out of That's here. That's fair. Why are we parent? And who the hell is deciding if my kid is acting up? Exactly. Because if it's Joe Blow sitting behind me over here because he can't enjoy his soup, because my kid's loud, well, go find a different restaurant, sir or madam. I would not pay this. I would pay the exact price of the bill. I would leave it in cash, and I would say, that's all you get. That's ridiculous. Now, that that restaurant should be out of business. This is going to be an unpopular opinion. No. It's not, it's not that I, I support this. I was going to say, I will throw, I, punch you in your Adam's apple. I don't support this. But I do think there is that some point to where if like it's just obvious where the parents aren't 
doing enough, you know? Like, they're just kind of letting oh, the kids run just around. Oh, they leave their kids? Yeah, yeah, they're just okay. kind of running around. I, I would understand that. But if it's like the kid acts up a little bit, but then the parents calm them down, that shouldn't be a Look, thing. Look, I've been at restaurants plenty of times with my kids to where, you know, they want – kids don't like to sit still. And I know, well, don't take them out to the restaurant then. Okay, Yeah, cool. don't have a life. Yeah, don't let your kid out of the house. That sounds like a great idea. How is the kid supposed to learn manners if they don't go out and have these opportunities? Now, you're right. If the parent is just sitting there on their phone or talking while the kid is standing up and throwing food across the room, yeah, probably should charge that person $50. Frankly, you probably say, hey, I need you to take care of the kid if that's okay. But... Like, if your kid is sitting there or crying because they're hungry or screaming because they're having fun and playing, I would love for somebody to come over and say, hey, your kid was out of control, so I added $50 to your bill. And, and this became a big story over uh, in England when there was a story on this on the local news where someone says, my kids watched the tablet until the food arrived. They ate their food and my wife took them outside and then I waited and paid the bill to later find out that there was a surcharge for what we are talking about. So, apparently, this guy's claiming his kids didn't do anything and he still got the surcharge of the $50. I saw When I saw this headline, I was like, man, this feels ridiculous and I know this would set Alex off oh, if I man, bring it up. This, this would piss me off so much and there's so many people that are responding like, oh, get over yourself, Alex. You need to train them at home and don't take them out in public until they're ready. I would love for somebody to it's act not, like It's not that. a dog. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do we really think, like, you got to potty train the kid before you could go out in public? Like, what are you doing? There, there are more adults out in public that misbehave rather than kids misbehaving out in public. Yeah, I, I saw this headline. I was like, wow, I, I don't think I've ever heard of this anywhere else. Um, I, and I saw this, and I was like, okay, to a certain extent, I could get it. But for the most part, I'm with you, and I think this is a bit ridiculous. Again, somebody texted in and said the Riz Show talked about this, and they all agreed upon it. I'm sure they all agreed to the point where, yeah, if you got a parent who is letting their kid run around the restaurant and pulling things off the wall or throwing food or touching people's food, that you should be charged with. Agreed. But, like, if we're talking about just a kid being out in public, being a child— in, and I agree with the six one eight. You need to give the the people a warning first. I, I agree with that. Look, that's fair. We, we just we need things to calm down over here. We're getting complaints. If you don't mind, take the kid outside for a couple minutes. Just, I'm fine with that. Otherwise, the man's bringing the surcharge on you. Yeah, but $50. like, but like, you just walk over and put a bill down, and it, don't bring anything up to the people and say, "Here's fifty dollars for your adult." What what was it called? Uh, what did they call it? It was adult. Adult something. Management? I can't remember what it was. Adult parent? adult Just adult surcharge is what they call That's it. That's freaking and, it, and the reasoning for it on all bills was for adults unable to parent. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, There's be, your parent I shaming. would be so pissed <laughs> parent shaming in that one. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up next, Mizzou is back in action tonight. Played well against Georgia. Not tonight. Tomorrow afternoon. Played well against Georgia but is this a make-or-break game for their season? We'll discuss next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So Mizzou is back in action tomorrow. Mizzou football, I should say, because Mizzou Hoops is in action later on tonight. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Alex Ferrario. But Mizzou football is playing in their first of their final, what is it, three games this season? No, four games 
No, three games, yeah. Tonight or tomorrow against Tennessee. Man, my mind is all over the place. You okay over there? Florida, then next weekend, and then you wrap up the regular season against Arkansas on the 24th. I finally got there, ladies and gentlemen. But the focus is on this one against Tennessee. Number 14th ranked Tennessee you host tomorrow afternoon. And to me, T-Bone, this is a make-or-break game for a good or bad season. And I know that sounds crazy, because we're talking about a Missouri team that's ranked, that went toe-to-toe with Georgia, that went toe-to-toe with LSU. That's great. And you beat two ranked opponents at the time. You took down K-State and you took down Kentucky. But this is a game, for lack of a better phrase, separates the boys from men. Because the Tigers showed that they're not ready to take the step into that elite category with the Georgia Bulldogs. They're close, but they're not there yet. This is a game that proves that you're better than the other middle-tier teams in the SEC. Because I don't think Tennessee's that great. I think you're actually pretty comparable in how these two teams play. I'd give the slight edge to the Missouri Tigers offense from what we've seen this season. But if you lay an egg against Tennessee or you lose this one, then you go into the final two games, you go into your bowl game, you go into the offseason looking at it and saying, we still aren't better than than that middle tier of the SEC. So that's why I do put some... Some some major importance on this game t- uh, tomorrow for the Tigers. Yeah, no, I I don't feel that way at all. I think no matter what, this year's a success. And even if you lose to Tennessee, I because if I would have said, "Hey, Mizzou's going to win," you can press this shiny red button right here, and Mizzou's going to get nine wins this year, assuming they hold out and win against Florida and Arkansas, which would be disappointing if they do not. I would have hit that button every single day of the week because I would have said nine wins for the Missouri Tigers. Hell yeah, I'll take that. In an SEC, uh, I, I expect this team going into the year to be like a 6-7 win team. I, I figured that Mizzou would not be able to get some of these key wins against Kansas State, who was ranked at the time. Uh, is still ranked, I should say. Kentucky, who was ranked at the time. They're not in the top 25 anymore. I think if they, even if they lose this game and they went out and end up winning nine games, they're still going to end up with a very good bowl game. They're probably still going to be in the top 25 in the college football playoff rankings. So I would say this season, no matter what happens this weekend against Tennessee, is viewed as a success. I understand what you're saying of you'd like to end the year saying that you were probably the top dog in that second tier. I think you're right there with LSU. LSU beat you head-to-head, so I'm going to give them that advantage. You beat Tennessee, you're arguably what, the – fourth, fifth best team in the SEC. Yeah, because it'd be Georgia, LSU, Alabama, and then you. Uh, probably Ole Miss, too. Ole Miss will oh, be in yeah, that I category. Guess that's true. So, yeah, you're, so you'll be top five, top, you, top five in that category. You'll be right in that middle tier, and, and your hope would be that you can have at least one big win against Tennessee, the Volunteers, and say, hey, we were able to beat one of these teams in that second tier. But, but, but see, no matter that's... for me, I, I think this is success because what tier did I think they were in coming into the year? Not in the second tier. I thought they were definitely in the third third tier. Yeah, but I, I think if you lose to Tennessee, you've proven that you're in the third tier. Like, you proved exactly what we thought they were. Now, yeah, the nine wins are great, but, like, you go through the schedule, you the K-State and the Kentucky games are going to look like good wins for you because those were ranked opponents at the time. But then you beat Vanderbilt. Okay, yeah, you were better than Vanderbilt. I could have told you that coming into the season. You beat South Carolina. Could have told you you were better than that team coming into the season. And you lose to Tennessee. You beat Florida. You beat Arkansas. We knew that they were better than those teams coming into the season. This Tennessee team is that team that has always been the hump for the Missouri Tigers that they haven't been able to get through. And I'm sure BK would disagree with me on this one because, look, 
nine-win season is a pretty awesome season for a team that's been Let six me tell you what six. I would give for nine yeah, wins for the say. Illinois football program but this like, year. Uh, you want to see progress, and this is progress, but it's not the type of progress that we're talking about. When you can get over a team like Tennessee that has been ranked all season, that even if you beat them, they drop to like 23, 24, they're still a top 25 team. That's the type of one you look at and you say, man, Mizzou took a step this season. See, I, and the reason I would continue to push back too is I think it's a different story if though you have the, these wins. And the Kansas State one still looks good because they're a top 25 team. Kentucky not looking as great, but still, still a good road in Kentucky. team that's given you problems ever since you've come to the SEC. Um, I, I would look at this and I'd say, you know, it'd be one thing if you only had the K-State win, you lost to Kentucky, and then you got blown out by Georgia. Every, every game they've lost, their two losses this year, they've been in. They could have won that LSU game, no doubt about it. Hell, they could have won the Georgia game. They only lost by nine, 30 to 21. And I, though I kind of said it, I said it jokingly when I came back on Tuesday, uh, they were in that game. They, the, two turnovers were the difference in that game. So I would say for sure this is a success. It does not matter what happens to Tennessee. Now, I'm willing to hear the conversation if they lose to Tennessee and then lose to Florida or Arkansas because they are definitely better than those two teams. There is no doubt in my mind that they should win those two games. But I still would say nine wins, very much a success for Eli Drinkwitz and the Missouri Tigers because their their season has added what I would call the adjusting scale for us when grading them. Because coming into the year, we thought seven wins. And now we're talking about nine wins, and that's a success. Yeah, they move the needle quite a bit for a football program that I had serious doubt in, and not just the football program, but the head coach himself, because he could bring in all the talent he wanted. He brought in Luther Burden last year, and they still were finding ways to end up 6-6. Six and six. I think this roster is definitely better, don't get me wrong, but I thought last year's team ended up being slightly disappointing going 500. This year, they haven't, they haven't had that costly game yet where I look at that and I say, oh, you were favored to beat a South Carolina, but you lost? No, they've taken care of business. So I would say major success for this team, no matter what the result is in this Tennessee game. Well, we'll see what it looks like against Tennessee tomorrow afternoon. The other Mizzou program that's in action is uh, the men's basketball team, who's already got a big victory over uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff. Huh? So like a 101 outing against that team is a good start to the season for them. But in all seriousness, you got a matchup tonight that's a measuring stick. You're taking on Memphis, a Memphis team that more than likely is going to be in the conversation of the top teams in college basketball and a Missouri Tigers team that is transitioning away from what they were last year into a new group of players. I'm very curious to see what they look like now that they've got a bigger presence underneath the hoops. You've got more ball movement and you've got Dennis Gates, who's been established now with this Tigers group. Yeah, a lot of these early on games like the Arkansas Pine Bluff game, like the only time it becomes a storyline is if the game is close, and it wasn't that close. Yeah. So there's not a lot to really lean into and learn from that game. But this is a game that you can look back, you can look at and say, okay, where is the Missouri Tiger program going up against Memphis? I was looking this up in the break. And Memphis, I mean, to your point, probably going to be a tournament team coming into the year. They are 37th in Ken Pop. Wow. So they, they are a really good team. They've been a good program uh, for the last couple of years. And just to give everybody kind of an idea, Missouri is 56 in Ken Pop. That feels pretty low early on. Um, I think they're a better team than that. And I think a win like this will really start to show you that. But it's going to be fun to watch tonight because, like you said, this is their first real test. You know, a year without Kobe Brown, now that he's in the NBA, we'll see what the scoring looks like and how they uh, go with things. I mean, they had a great game uh, from East, their guard uh, against Arkansas and Pine Bluff, where he put 21 on the board. Bates got 24 minutes and had 18 points. Like, they're a fun team. And I think Missouri's a team that can, 
I wouldn't say push Illinois because they're different conferences, but they're two teams to me that are top 25 programs. I know Missouri's not there yet. I think they can get there with a win against Memphis, and it's their first test of the year, and I'm excited to see what it looks like. I am too. I'm just happy basketball season is here. Uh, I always enjoy these first couple of weeks of it because you get the uh, you get the, the random upsets that people are talking about, but more than anything, you start to see kind of teams break away from the the pack early on and you get a good idea of what they're going to look like so uh, Mizzou hoops in action tonight they'll be taking on Memphis Tigers uh, and a good measuring stick to kick off this season for Dennis Gates and his squad alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns I'm Alex Ferrario coming up in 15 minutes we've got one's gotta go a Friday staple you send us three options we'll tell you which one has to go 314-399-9646 but coming up next We've talked a lot about how the Blues may not be great at one specific thing. I believe we're starting to see the one area that they are great at, and it's an area that I'm not sure a lot of people saw coming. We'll discuss next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Coyotes in, work it near wing. Hofer, kick save as he kicked that shot out. That came off the stick of Michelli. Quick pass to center, but Schneevitz gets it over the line, but Schmaltz there to come back the other way with it to Keller. Changes speed, slows down, drags up, moves it into the middle on the back end, deflected on net, and Hofer off the right leg. Look down, finds the puck, and then covers it up to get the whistle. Side of the net, the puck comes loose. Hofer couldn't cover it up. He great recovers to make a great save on a chance by Smoltz. Now to Jersey. Left circle. Michelli shooting. Bad save. Hofer. He was good. Yeah, solid. You know, I was I was happy. I was happy for him. And you know, he was solid in that. That's Craig Berube after last night's 2-1 victory against the Arizona Coyotes. May not have had a lot of work in that one as Joel Hofer stopped 19 of 20 shots, but for three straight games in Joel Hofer's 3-1 start to the season, he stopped over 100 shots on goal uh, and a 9-18 save percentage. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Alex Ferrario. We talk a lot about, in the early portion of the season, the Blues not being great at one specific thing. Now, that's also a team that is six five and one on the season and continuing to stay in the conversation of playoff teams. But after that game last night, I, I'm officially ready to say that the Blues are great at goaltending. And you can use the any argument you want of well, Jordan Bennington typically collapses in November or December, or we really haven't seen much of Joel Hofer. What about that Arizona Coyotes game? Doesn't matter to me. I think when you look at what Joel Hofer and Jordan Bennington have combined for so far, and that is 18th and 20th place in the National Hockey League uh, in terms of save percentage, and you can move them, honestly, to 16th and 18th because there's two guys in the save percentage that have only played two games or one game, really another one with three. You've got guys now that have proven they can be regular season goaltenders. They have proven they can make the big desperation saves when you need them to. And they have fortified that that final wall that opponents have to get through to win hockey games. And overall, I think both have been extremely solid. Things have gotten out of hand. You've had an ugly game for both of them. Jordan Biddington won against the Winnipeg Jets the other night. Joel Hofer, that Arizona Coyotes game. But think of the rebound opponents that they have had in terms of 
picking up victories against the Dallas Stars and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Calgary Flames and last night against the Arizona Coyotes, they've proven to be regular season goaltenders. And now you have a duo that the Blues have resembled in the past of guys that if you got two goaltenders, you're going to be in the conversation every single night. Oh, rookie mistake. I'm turning on my mic. How long have you been doing this? Unbelievable. Uh, only four years. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I was really impressed with Hofer last night because I remember when, they, when we uh, were talking in studio yesterday when it was kind of not announced, but he was first one off the ice. I was like, man, that's interesting because he really struggled in his first start for the St. Louis Blues this year against his Arizona Coyotes team, and he comes back and he bounces back, and he was awesome last night, stopping 19-20 to shots. And to your point on them having this goaltending tandem, the Blues were really hoping for that this year. They needed it. They they needed it. They wanted to get – I don't want to say they wanted less of Bennington, but they wanted him to play less so he's fresher if they're going to make a playoff run or a playoff push down the stretch. Because I think at times last year you could tell Bennington was exhausted because they had to wear him down because they didn't really have a backup goaltender. Sorry, my guy Thomas Grice. Um, but I, I thought you were going to say Billy Huso, who's also a backup goaltender. I miss, I miss Huso. Um, he misses St. Louis too. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's not having fun in Detroit. Uh, but I, I think with this goaltending team that they've got, I, I think they've got themselves – basically like you said, to where they have confidence in both guys. Yeah. And that is something that we've talked about it. In today's NHL, you need that. You need to have basically a 60-40 split with your goaltenders. It, not a lot of guys can continue to really grind out that 70-30 split. Or last year, I felt like Bennington was like 80-20 in terms of starts percentage-wise. Um, I, I think with Hofer, after that first start, I said, oh, man. I And BK said this too, and I think it was probably right at the time. The difference in that loss to the Arizona Coyotes may have been was just goaltending. Was a lot of the numbers, a lot of the expected goals, all that looked similar to all the previous games. And Hofer just had a bad night. Mm-hmm. Ever since then, his last three starts, he stopped seventy six of eighty shots, a nine fifty save percentage, and a one three three goals against average. By the way, that would be best in the NHL. It would be second best in the NHL right now, behind Jeremy Swayman. Uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, behind Jeremy Swayman. That means if you just had those numbers, he'd be better than. Varlamov from the Islanders, Quick from the Rangers, Hill from the Vegas Golden Knights, you're putting them at the top of the top. Yeah, and, and the goals that are going in, they're not ones that, for most the most part this year with this tandem, both Hofer and Bennington, there's maybe been like one or two where I went, okay, he probably would like that back. The rest of them are, maybe it's a rebound, there happens to be a backdoor tap-in, or there happens to be like a screen in front and he doesn't see it. And they've all, those, those bad goals you're talking about came in one game. Bennington's one was against Winnipeg. Yep. And Hofer's one was against the Arizona Coyotes. And we said this, this scheme, this defensive scheme for the Blues. I think you said it coming into the year, and I was skeptical at the time. But the idea was, if you keep them out of the slot and you prevent those backdoor tap-ins, you hope Bennington and Hofer can come through. And if they do, you're potentially a playoff team. This is the formula the Blues wanted. They wanted to keep everything to the outside and basically say, okay, Jordan Bennington, okay, Joel Hofer, we're going to keep them to the outside. You've just got to make the save. And as they've done so far this year, for the most part, they've done that, and they've kept you in most games. You may be getting outshot in a lot of these games, but as long as you keep most of those shooting attempts from the outside – Right now, Bennington and Hofer, they're making the saves that are needed. And, and every now and then there is one that maybe gets past them that you want you would like to see uh, that she wouldn't go in on them. Yeah. But if it's just one, okay, then yeah, that's a really good game for both your goaltenders. I think this is a dynamic duo that we might be talking about as the season continues to get going. And this is the thing with it, too. And people might overlook this. And Donnie, JR, and I talked about this on the Last Minute Blues podcast earlier today. The Blues have gone so long of searching for that guy, that stud goaltender. 
and they've gone years of trying to find the duo. Now, we've seen some of the best when you had Yaroslav Halak and Brian Elliott that won the Jennings Trophy, when you had Brian Elliott and Jake Allen, when you had Jake Allen and Carter Hutton, and then when you had Jake Allen and Jordan Bennington. You've had some awesome duos. And then Bennington and Huso. I can't overlook that because Huso was great when he was a part of a tandem. But you're setting yourself up for a long stretch of never having to worry about your goaltender. If this is who Joel Hofer is, and look, people might not agree with me on this, I personally feel like this is like the reincarnation of Ben Bishop. The guy is big, he moves the puck so well, he's so fluent in net, and we all remember that, that, that Ben Bishop trade. Like You traded away Ben Bishop because you had to choose between one of them, and you felt you were good in the position that you had certain guys. Jake Allen was coming up. And you moved the goaltender. And that goaltender went on to be a number one in Ottawa, in Tampa, and in Dallas. Jake Allen had a lot of success. He's a Stanley Cup champion here. But you were always kind of wondering, where's that next guy coming from? Now that next guy is in an entry-level contract for this year and next year. And then, who's going to be 26 years old at that time, becomes a restricted free agent where you control his rights. That, that year that you have to re-sign him, It's the final year of Jordan Bennington. So you're entering a stretch where one of the most important positions for championship caliber teams, if you don't believe me, go look at the Edmonton Oilers, is the goaltending position. And you have an abundance of guys that you trust right now. And think of the reps that Joel Hofer is going to acquire between now and the end of Jordan Bennington's contract. Yeah, and I think the the portion that of that that you just said there that's important is he's on the entry-level contract, too. You know, I, I just looked this up because I, I, the first thing that popped to my mind was, okay, what is Minnesota paying their guys? They're not paying a ton, $7.25 million for yeah. their two goaltenders. It, it can cost a pretty penny to have two goal, goaltenders on your roster. The Blues have them for like $7 bucks, mm-hmm. and most of that money's going to Jordan Biddington on his contract. So they're in a good spot there that if, if Hofer plays like this, now he will get paid at some point, oh, and, that, and that's when it changes the equation. But for the time being on the entry-level deal – yeah, this is a steal. This is where when you're a team that is competing and you're looking at guys, you need to find some sur- you need to find guys that have significant surplus value. And right now Joel Hofer is one of those guys as the backup goaltender because you can feel confident in throwing him in a game and go, "Okay, this isn't going to be a roller coaster. We're yeah. not sure what's going to happen tonight." Like last year with Grice. Exactly. Right now, you say, "Okay, if we throw Hofer in this game, we know we've got ourselves a chance to win this hockey game if we do everything else around him right." So T-Bone also brought up the defense and the scheme that we've been seeing. Are 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 we all ready to say that the defense is fixed? And we're 12 games in, and we talked about this, you know, 20 to 25 games is when you start really knowing what your team is, but you're 12 games in, and I want to make sure I'm correct on this one because that game against the Winnipeg Jets might have changed it. Uh, but you've outscored your opponent 20-18 to 18 at even strength. And in terms of goals allowed, you're sixth best in the National Hockey League. The only teams that have allowed less goals than you, Vegas Golden Knights, who have played two more games than you, Dallas, who has played the same amount of games as you and allowed three less goals, the Rangers, the Vancouver Canucks, who's played one more game than you and allowed seven less goals. They're freaking incredible right now. And then the Boston Bruins. I mean, we've seen this against Arizona. We've seen it against Pittsburgh, against Calgary, against Colorado, against Dallas. Like, you've seen all echelons of talent in the NHL through 12 games. And the defense has stood strong almost every single one of them. Penalty kill, power play, we can talk about those. But at 5-on-5, five five, are we ready to say this defense is fixed? 
I think I'm. I think I'm there. I because I think we said what about ten, twenty games before we could come to a conclusion on anything, and I feel like though maybe the opinion if they go on like an eight game losing streak, then yeah, maybe my opinion changes. Anything can happen, but I, I think right now I'm willing to say it's fixed for the personnel they have. I, I think is it. Would you like some upgrades on that of on course. the blue line? Of course you would. But the Blues have found a way to take what they had and find a way to find a scheme that is going to work with these guys. And I was skeptical skeptical of that. You know, I remember when we were talking about this new zone scheme they're going to. Talking about and, the X Factor. Remember yeah, we talked to Mike Weber? And, and and Mike Weber, exactly. And I remember going, well, you know, can a coach make that much of a difference? Does a new scheme make that much of a difference? When I just watched this defense allow backdoor tapping after backdoor tapping last year. And the answer to that question is yes. They they are playing to the scheme. They're playing really well in this scheme. There are some people in in basketball, for example, that just can't play man-to-man defense. They are better in a 2-3 zone. Teams do that a lot. Uh, Syracuse has made a living off of it. <laughs> the, the Blues are basically doing the exact same thing in hockey. They struggled at that man-to-man defense. They were getting kind of outmatched in at, at their own goal line. They were having miscommunications and allowing backdoor tap-ins. In this zone scheme, they're doing a great job of keeping things to the perimeter and allowing Bennington to just make the easier saves from the outside. So I think I'm willing to say, yes, the defense is fixed. And to that point on what you just read off those numbers there at 5-on-5, it's why the special teams is the one thing that's just holding them back right now. I'm telling you, you fix special teams. Your your penalty your penalty kill's been good like for stretches, and then it has a bad game, and then it gets right back on track. You fix your power play, it is not out of the question to be sitting here talking about the Blues fighting for second place in the Central Division. And I know that sounds odd, but, well, I mean, honestly, first place, but... All right, well, okay. But, now, look, like, seriously... Now, now you're starting to lose me a little bit. Okay, okay I, I could put... I could go third place... Hear me out Second place with Colorado and Dallas. Well, I'm not there. Well, third place and second place, you're three points away with Yeah, but I don't hand. believe in Winnipeg. You're four points behind the Dallas Stars, and you played that Dallas Stars team as tight as you can ask for. So... I mean, seriously, though, the power play, we're talking about a power play. If you if you fix it, there's at least two more wins under your belt, which puts you right where the Dallas Stars are at. You fix this power play, it's not – I'm not saying that this is a Stanley Cup contending team. But what I am saying is you fix this power play, we aren't questioning if this is a playoff team. We're comfortable saying that this is a playoff team. That part I agree with. I, I think if you fix the power play – and you get rid of some of those kind of off games on the penalty. But look, that's going to happen. I, my main focus is the power play because right. one for 37 is abysmal. You, you fix the power play, I, I think you're a team that can be in that top three conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely kind of – I wouldn't say a lock because nobody's ever locked for the playoffs. But a team that I would definitely really be saying every day on our show, like, yeah, I think this is a playoff team. Yeah, I think this is a playoff team. But because special teams has been too inconsistent for the Blues, it's hurt it's, you. It's why they're sitting in this muddy middle of the Western Conference. Yep. Can they fix the power play? I don't know if they've got the personnel to do it. They've had a couple of those power play chances that we talked about earlier where they've gotten close. But they fixed the power play. Yeah, I'm willing to have the conversation of this is a playoff team. Right now, as things sit, special teams is an issue. And I think it's why they're sitting in this muddy middle and are on as a fringe playoff team that's coming in today. What are they? They're the last playoff spot in the Western Conference. And if you're going to push back on the defense being fixed, it's 12 games, Ferrario. Uh, 12 games last year through the first 12 games of the season. <laughs> this you're, had to be brutal. You ready for this? First 12 games of the season. You know what Justin Falk and Tory Krug were a combined plus minus? I'll go minus 20. Minus 27. Whew. You know what they are through 12 games this season? Well, Krug's a plus, I know, so I'll go there a plus 10. Plus 11. Mm, that was close. Plus 11. And I, I mean, like the only guys that have that are in the minus conversation of defensemen are Colton Pareko and Nick Letty. And 
again, minus five combined between those two compared to what it was last year through 12 games, significantly different. So, yeah, I think if you're going to get optimistic, it's definitely about the way that this defense has been playing from start to finish. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario, 314-399-9646. That is our Air Comfort Service text line. We're also live on our YouTube page at 101 ESPN STL, presented by the Air Alliance team. You send us three scenarios. We'll tell you which one's got to go next for One's Got to Go on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Count that, that big bang. 314-399-9646. Oh, you could taste the weekend, B- T- not BK, your T-bone. Kind of looked like BK, though. Remember, dude, we were excited he wasn't here today. I know. That ruined it, he didn't just, it? You haven't he just had secretly the, admitted that. You haven't had a tone today, so I appreciate that about welcome. you. I mean, I got a little upset when he brought up pitch-to-contact pitchers. Like, whoa, Learned well, at least I didn't tell you you were wrong, which I will tell you at some point. Probably in this segment. One's got to go. You send us three scenarios. We'll tell you which one's got to go. The reason I said BK there is because this is a really good one that we'll bring up first. One's got to go. BK football edition. BK tackling Derrick Henry. Oh, gosh. Locking down Luther Burden and man coverage. Or avoiding a sack from TJ Watt. Uh, I would get rid of the locking down burden coverage because there's no pain, you know? Oh, like, this is – so you're going off of what you want to see. I uh, was going off of what he realistically could do. Oh, oh. Well, he can do any of those, so I'm going to go off what what I want to see. Uh, him trying to tackle Derrick Henry would be funny. Um, <laughs> he'd be – he'd be what was it, in the Little Giants? or trying to tackle somebody behind. just holding on. He's yeah. like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, he would, TJ Watt would like knock him into another universe. Oh, yeah. so TJ Watt would like slap I, him back to his previous life. I get rid of the Luther Burden one. That one, like BK, BK runs, so I think he could get lucky once and stop him from getting a catch. I'm with you on that one. Bradford, which one? You like pain? Which one would you like to see go? <laughs> I think that it would be pretty funny to actually see Burden putting BK on skates, but I'm a fan of the realism, too, and I have to be honest with you. Despite what I've heard about his alleged prowess as an offensive lineman back in the day, I don't buy his ability to stand up to 1D Henry in any capacity. That would be both entertaining and completely unrealistic. Yeah, this guy tried to tell me he was a right tackle when he was when he played football. A little, I thought he was a tight end. Yeah, well, I think he's making up all this stuff. I think he was a water boy. One's got to go from the <laughs> 314. Uh, you could send us your scenarios, 314-399-9646. One's got to go Thanksgiving side edition. Oh, Green boy. bean casserole, sweet potatoes. I'm assuming it's with the marshmallows. Or cranberry sauce. Oh, man. This is easy for me. What is it? It's cranberry sauce. Same. It's disgusting. Nothing about it. The canned cranberry sauce, the homemade cranberry sauce, it's nasty. I don't use it on anything. You can put it on turkey. It's not going to make that dry turkey taste any better. That one's got to go. Man, I think I'm with you guys. I think I'd get rid of the cranberry sauce, too. But I'm not a sweet potato guy. But I could get through that. Like, if I had the green bean casserole in front of me, and you said, okay, we got to eat the sweet potatoes. I said, okay, I, I could do that. Power I, through I, it. I could power through it. I cannot power through cranberry sauce. 
it's out of here. What if I put stuffing in place of cranberry sauce? Oh, then it's definitely sweet potatoes. It's gotta okay, go. I yeah. love stuffing. I, I do too. And creamy casseroles. Like I, I the think creamy casseroles. Thanksgiving sauce. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Oh, I would. I think it's good. I I can eat it, but I could go without it too. But I wouldn't like get the. Oh yeah. Ugh. Sweet potatoes. Alex, Gross. I have to be honest with you. I defy you on the subject of stuffing. I have never been that enamored with the stuffing. I've never really understood it. No, it doesn't really play at this household. Let me ask you this question. Is it because you make your stuffing too, too soggy, Bradford? I do not make the stuffing, so I guess I'm pinning the displeasure on somebody else. Okay, I see. And that's that's always my question when somebody says you don't like something. Is it because you, you're bad at cooking it, or is it because it's gross to you? All of the above. Would you- would you use the cranberry sauce argument with me? But I'm a good cook, and cranberry sauce is trash. Yeah, it so. came from a can. Plain and simple. Uh, one's got to go actor movies edition. So Ooh. all of the movies from this actor are gone. Oh, boy. Adam Sandler. Okay. Will Ferrell. Vince Vaughn. Kevin Hart. Um. see. I've definitely seen some Adam Sandler. I've seen Will Ferrell. Um, Vince Vaughn. Eh, like, what's his best movie? You would say. Oh my God, are you kidding? Wedding Crashers, but so I haven't seen Wedding Crashers. Wedding Crashers, old school swingers. I've seen old school dodgeball swingers. Dodgeball swingers haven't seen. Plus, he like touches into the other realm too of like yeah. actual like acting, not just comedies. Yeah. Uh, but Four Christmases with Reese, with Reese Witherspoon. Oh man, he's so good and everything. I, to be fair, I don't know if I know a great Kevin Hart movie either. Um, but I would probably say Vince Vaughn. I've never been that big a Vince Vaughn oh, fan. I do like some of Kevin Hart's stand-up, so I just assume I'll like one of his movies. Um, I I would definitely get rid of Vince Vaughn here. Okay. Bradford? Vaughn has the chops. He definitely stays for me. Adam Sandler will always hold a particular place in my heart growing up formative years. I mean, how many of us can't recite every line from Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, etc.? Farrell also, well, you know, that goes without saying. Farrell also makes the cut. I've got to be honest with you, unless you're talking about a stand-up special, and I know this is an easy take, not exactly a hot take, not really feeling the Kevin Hart. So what if he can churn out a Netflix movie every four months? I don't care, Pat. I'm with them there. Kevin Hart's had a couple of good movies, like um, Get Hard with Will Ferrell was hilarious, but that'd be the Will Ferrell movie, so I kind of get to to my loophole for you. But, like, I don't really know he's been in movies that makes me laugh as much as those other three. I'm telling you, Vince Fun is just like an unsung hero with these comedies, just dark horses. I've got Wedding Crashers on my to-do, like, watch list. watch, Watch the movie The Watch. It's with him, it's with Jonah Hill, and it's with Ben Stiller. It is freaking hilarious, and Vince Vaughn, in my opinion, is one of the better ones. Uh, Final one on this one. One's got to go future Cardinals Hall of Fame edition. Oh, boy. Adam Wainwright, Yadier Molina, Albert Pujols, Matt Carpenter. Oh, this is simple. Oh, go ahead. You go first. You be the villain. This is simple. I'm sorry, it has to be Marp. Is this really even under consideration right now? Wainwright, yeah. Molina, and Pujols, you're talking about the icons of icons, basically for all eternity as far as the franchise is concerned. While Matt Carpenter had a few all-star seasons and even a couple of campaigns in which I would contend he was debatably MVP worthy, at least in the conversation, the body of work doesn't stack up. Everybody else had more acclaim. It's not close. Yeah, I guess I would say Marp. I, I I think it's a little closer than Bradford led on there because I mean Marp was one of the best hitters in baseball for a long. Oh period yeah, what'd there. that get the Cardinals? Uh, 
He was part of the 2011 team. Yeah. He played seven games. It wasn't one of the best teams um, at that time. No, but <laughs> I, and look, that's a fair question. Um, he doesn't have the championships that, you know, those other three guys have. I mean, Yachty and Albert, you can't take them out. I mean, they're going to be baseball Hall of Famers. And Wainwright, probably not a baseball Hall of Famer, but he's pretty close, I would say. I, I agree. It's Marv. I, I think this would be a, a tougher question if you threw, like, Goldie's name into here. Or Dolan Arenado's or name. Or Arenado into here. Probably. Like, I, because I think Goldie even tougher because he's won an MVP. Does it get tougher, though, if those two guys don't win a championship here? Because I don't think it does. I think if neither of them win a championship with the Cardinals and they end their careers as a St. Louis Cardinal, I still think you're getting rid of those compared to the other three. Ah, that's fair, um, because Wayno has the 06 closing out the World Series. He wasn't a part of the 11 team coming back from Tommy John, but he right. got the team to a World Series in 13. Pujols has his monstrous yeah. 11 um, season. Yeah, I, th- I guess that's fair. Yeah. I, I would put a ton of value on an MVP, though. What's difficult is if you just make it those three and say which one's got to go. Because yeah. I, I, oh, I think it's, I think it's Wayno. See, I would have said Yachty. No, I I mean he's a baseball Hall of Famer. I know, but man, I think I would have said Wayne. I think I would have said Yachty mostly because Wayno was just so as be, as as much as he's not a Hall of Famer, he got you through those years where it felt like you didn't have an ace and pitched like an ace, not being an ace. If that makes sense. So clearly, you're not operating based solely on the numbers here because that certainly does change the dynamic in the conversation. Bradford, I don't appreciate your tone there. Yeah, what got rid of the tone yeah. in BK? Look, man, no? when you get rid of BK hey. and you use tone, this is when you get squirted with a water bottle. I was actually going to direct a little bit of tone toward Tanner because I was going to say, Tanner, if you're enthused with Matt Carpenter in 2023, you know, I think he could be had to play the hot corner once Arenado is dealt. Man, mm. he just like one-upped you intelligence-wise. What did that feel like? No, he didn't. He just tried to trade Arenado. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> See, and he's look, a Padre. He picked up his option because he was terrible this everybody year. Everybody loves one's got to go until it ruins friendships. We'll see if we can regain them coming up next with the BK and Ferrario Rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Gloria Loom, your home sold guaranteed realty. Selling your home begins at GloriaHasTheBuyers.com. Here on BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns. I'm Alex Ferrario. We have been live at the ENB Granite Studios at Centene Community Ice Center. For those that have missed it, you could go back and watch our show on the YouTube page, 101 ESPN STL, sponsored by the Air Alliance team. And if you missed anything from our show today, you can check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, presented by Dobbs tire and auto centers and in our final couple of minutes we'll wrap up with a little week a look ahead in the nfl for week 10 t-bone game you're most looking forward to watching this weekend so i think the game i'm most excited for is 49ers jaguars because jacksonville i think they're a good team they're six and two but they just haven't been playing as crisp as i think they should be with the weapons that they've got offensively carrie said this on the fast lane yesterday and i agree with them. they just give off like a weird vibe and oh, yeah. I, I don't get it and i and the 49ers are still a really good team they're getting healthier trent 
Williams is going to be a game time decision. They're going to get Debo Samuel back. I, I'm in. That's probably the best game in my opinion on the on the slate this weekend. Yeah, I like that one. I also like Lions and Chargers. I'm really intrigued and Browns and Ravens. Two games that I think are both going to be really influential on what takes place uh, down the stretch into postseason action. Uh, game that you can see going in an upset direction. So I'm going to go with that Browns-Ravens game you said. I, I like Cleveland in this one. I, I really do. I, the defense has been playing well all year. They've had one or two games that have just been kind of a blip on the radar. And I look at what Deshaun Watson did last week. He looked really good. And he actually looked healthy with his shoulder. Uh, so I, I think they can pull off the upset against Baltimore. They Baltimore beat them earlier in the year, 28-3. Second time around, these teams now know each other a little bit better. I could see Cleveland winning this one, so I'm going to take them as my upset pick. I, I can see Texans winning this week against Cincinnati. I like that one, too. I mean, it's plus 6.5. First of all, I think they, they cover that spread easily. I think they're within 6.5 points. Um, but I, I could see the Texans winning straight up, especially with this injury of T. Higgins. I think C.J. Stroud's got some confidence, some swagger to him right now. I'm not sure Cincinnati's defense is going to be able to find a way to stop that offense. And Jamar Chase dealing with a back injury? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a running game that Cincinnati might have to take care of, and that bodes well for the Houston Texans defense. Final one, uh, game that could change the outlook of the team this weekend. Uh, so I would say the Texans is one for me. I, I think a win here, you're 5-4, and four and you beat the Cincinnati Bengals on the road, a really good team, though still banged up. That's a significant win. Also, the Vikings. You know, I, yeah. I, Vikings, you're 6-4. and four. They're, I think, in the playoff picture right now. You're 6-4, and four, and Joshua Dobbs now starting to learn this offense. I think Josh Dobbs could get the Vikings to the playoffs as long as he plays comp, uh, plays that game, game manager as the quarterback style and doesn't force and try and do too much. Man, if, if Jacksonville can upset San Francisco, watch out for Seattle because if Seattle beats Washington you're talking about them taking over first place in the NFC West and I know they laid an egg against the Ravens pun intended because they're birds T-Bone I know you understood that uh, but keep an eye out oh, for that one wow, uh, that is good gonna, one that's going to close it down for us today we'll be back with you on Monday BK will be back on Tuesday we have our pickums this weekend so wish me luck wish these guys bad luck we'll talk to you Monday fast lane coming up next on 101 ESPN You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.